0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I'm looking for a place Where the dogs don't bite Children don't cry And everything always goes just right And brothers don't fight Maybe it's just over that hill Maybe it ain't. Maybe there's gold at the end of this ring. And maybe it's just a thing Maybe it's just over that hill, up ahead. Maybe it ain't. I'm just driving for a time. When the sun all-
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Mike Malloy.
3: Hello, colleagues and
2: listeners. Also back with us this week is Ms. Maitland-McDonough.
4: Friends, Romans, countrymen, glad you're all here.
2: This week we are looking at the 1989 oddity Sunny Boy. Produced by Ovidio G. Asinaitis, the film stars Paul L. Smith and David Carradine as Slew and Pearl, two desert dwellers who run a small crime empire with the help of their friends Weasel, played by Brad Dourif, and Charlie P., played by Sidney Lassick. When Weasel accidentally brings a baby to Slew and Pearl, they raise it as their own, turning the child into something of a wild beast they call Sunny Boy. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Sunny Boy, definitely go check it out and come back. We will still be here. So, Mike, when was the first time you saw Sunny Boy, and what did you think?
3: I saw it on videotape around 2002. I was living in Pasadena, California, and I had just gotten a new roommate named Rick, and uh, we had access to Eddie Brandt's amazing collection of videotapes, about 70,000 plus. I was working my way through the filmography of some of my favorite actors. I had just done Warren Oates. Uh, just seen everything of his that I hadn't seen previously. And then I move on to David Carradine. And David Carradine did offbeat stuff like this, Sonny Boy. And he did a bunch of grade Z dreck. And uh, as I was about five films into my David Carradine run, Rick said, Hey, Mike, uh, could we switch back to somebody like Warren Oates, please? But uh, I saw Sonny Boy. immediately got that it was kind of a Frankenstein tale without the sci-fi elements, without the supernatural elements. Uh, only now that I've kind of wired my brain to see the body of cinema in terms of subgenre, do I realize that uh, it also had this thing going on. Independent cinema, in fact, had this thing going on as the 80s rolled over into the 90s, these desert films. Uh, I don't know if it was the influence of Raising Arizona, but you had all of these dirt-cheap indies being made around this period. In addition to Raising Arizona, you had, uh, what was it, Gas Food Lodging, Warm Summer Rain, Sunny Boy... Uh, so now I see it kind of in those terms, too.
4: I first saw Sonny Boy on, uh, on on videotape at Archaic Medium, and I saw it because a friend of mine had a tape of it and, and basically said, Madeline, you've got to see this movie. It is bug house crazy. I thought at one time that I had seen it as a screen, at a screening, but as I was watching it again, it, it became more and more clear to me that, no, I had never seen it on a screen. That it really was a pure video experience for me, but I saw it in 1989, 1990, so it actually was new then. It was just not a film that was getting any kind of distribution that I recall at all. I mean, I don't, I don't remember Sonny Boy playing Times Square, and you know, if you can't play Times Square with a movie like this, where, where do you put a movie like this theatrically? I mean, Mike, do you have any idea what kind of theatrical distribution it got? Because, I don't have a clue.
3: In preparation for the show, I went and uh did a Google newspaper archive search for this and found all kinds of angry critic reactions uh at the thing so I'm imagining it did get a limited theatrical.
4: Well, The thing is a lot of the critical responses I I saw seem to have come from when it came out on on video and DVD. I, I have no real sense of of how it did in theaters or how, I mean it must have played someplace but I don't know where it played. And frankly, I don't know where it would play, because as I was looking at it again, I was thinking, wow, this is a movie with no audience. You look at its elements and uh, just sit down and and take a notepad and think, okay, I'm going to be the publicist for this movie. Who's the audience I'm going to reach out to? I was a publicist, and and I came up with Zip.
3: Well, that was a few, too year, a few years too early for the indie boom where, you know, it was almost envelope pushing in the uh, weirdness uh, almost for the sake of alienating the mainstream audience. Uh, it would have perhaps played better then. But I think back at the time, it had to have a limited theatrical just uh, in an obligatory nature to uh, help sell the video release. The sell sheets and stuff would be able to say direct from theatrical. Uh, so even if it only played two screens.
4: And I think limited is definitely the word there because it's a movie that even in the context of an exploitation circuit is a really, really hard sell. There is no monster in it. There really aren't any serial killings in it. So you couldn't sell it as a slasher movie. It's not a movie where you can applaud for anything, really. I mean, it's a movie whose overwhelming tone is one of tremendous sadness, uh, But, you know, every human interaction in this film is overlaid with a layer of tragedy. So it's not a movie that I think was an easy sell in any of the usual markets that you could pick up some weird movie that, okay, had some freaky aspect to it that you could sell it in grindhouses, you could sell it in a place like Times Square, you could sell it... In very small theaters, you could double bill it with something. I mean, Sunny Boy really is a difficult picture in a way that I think is highly unexpected for a movie that on paper kind of sounds as though it has exploitable elements, but in fact is simply an overwhelmingly sad, desolate movie.
2: From what I understand, it took a while. They shot this in 87, and it took a while to find a distributor. And then once it finally did come out, theatrically, though it was limited, a lot of theaters pulled it after a few days because of it being bizarre, and I would think more than it being bizarre, because it didn't sell. And it probably didn't sell because people didn't know how the hell to market this thing. And I have to say, for me... I never even heard of Sonny Boy for the longest damn time. I only heard about it, gosh, probably like mid-early, you know, uh, the first decade of the 2000s. And just people saying, oh, you got to see this weird movie. David Carradine is a, is a drag queen. And by that time, I was just like, God, I've seen David Carradine do everything. I really don't need to see him as a da- drag queen. <laughs> and if that is the selling point of the film for people... It's really not that much of a selling point. I mean, he gives a tremendous performance in this. And I wouldn't say that he's, you know, when I think of a drag queen, I think of somebody, you know, larger than life when it comes to their drag, you know, thinking of a divine or, you know, a Mimi, I'm first or Sharon Needles or something. Whereas David Carradine, just, he's playing it very quietly, and I really kind of appreciate the subtlety that he's bringing to the role uh, as Pearl. And I think this, for me, this is one of his best performances.
4: Oh, I entirely agree with you. I think it's a phenomenal performance. And you're right, it's absolutely not a drag queen performance. David Carradine plays Pearl as a woman, despite the fact that Pearl is clearly a man. There's no kind of flamboyance There isn't even a sense, really, I think, that Pearl is a trans person. Pearl is just Pearl. And Pearl presents herself as a woman, and everybody treats her as a woman, despite the fact that she's David Carradine,
3: you know. Well, in her head, yes, she's a woman. But uh, in in the film, uh, she is clearly a trans person, because I think we see chest hair on the character at some point.
4: Well, I mean, we also see her legs, which are not a, not a woman's, his legs, which are clearly not a woman's legs. And we see a, a physical way of moving that is not the way women move, it's the way men move. And yet, in every aspect of Pearl's day-to-day behavior, Pearl behaves as a woman and clearly sees herself that way. So it's, it's, she, Pearl is an absolutely fascinating character, particularly in, in the late 1980s when I dare say that most exploitation audiences, and again, those are really the only audiences that anybody could have expected to see this this movie, had any sense of the complexity of trans people, let's say. They really did see, well, either you are a transvestite, in which case you're a man who's pretending to be a woman, or you're a transsexual, in which case you're a man who's undergone surgery to become a woman or you're a man or you're a woman. The whole thing of Pearl's character is that Pearl is not really bound by, I think, the categories that people going to see this film when this film was new would have had any way of dealing with.
2: Well, I find it interesting that at one point Sidney Lassick says to her,
5: What have you there? I didn't know my beautiful Pearl Blossom was with child.
2: And he doesn't necessarily say it in a winking way. There's not this like, oh, we all know that Pearl can't have a child. It just, he says it genuinely. I know he doesn't necessarily believe it, but it's nice that it isn't pandering to her. And I would also say that in any other movie coming out around this time, Pearl would probably be punished by the end of the film because she is trans. Like, by the end of the movie, she would probably have been either humiliated or I know she, she uh, spoilers she dies in the film, but she probably would have been shot in the dick if this was another film.
4: Which it absolutely isn't. And no, it doesn't sound like sarcasm. It sounds like a very odd kind of rural gentility when you're speaking to a woman about the fact that she has been with child and has now produced this lovely baby you're looking at. It, it's absolutely fascinating.
2: When the movie sets it up, you talked about the overlying sadness for this whole film, and it really sets it up from the beginning. You know, We talked uh, on the show a few weeks ago about Massacre at Central High and how the opening credits for that will have uh, the, the David character running and then showing bits of what's to come in the film and what has happened in the film. And Sunny Boy starts very much the same way, where we have Weasel driving through the desert, and then all of these cuts to this fire that's happening, and you're like, okay, is this happening at the same time, or is this going to happen later on in the film? And we find out later that it's going to happen later in the film, but it's nice that it sets us up as there are really bad things afoot. And somebody's murdered within the first ten minutes of the movie, of course, or a couple people are, but you really get that sense right from those opening credits this is not a normal movie.
3: There are bad things afoot. Right, and those head credits are playing under a David Carradine composition, Paint, uh, which is a favorite song of mine of his, and is a bit of nerdy David Carradine trivia. He composed the opening credits also for his own directorial debut, or the first one of his to really get released, Americana, which is also an opening credit sequence with flash-forwards in it. How about that?
4: Very interesting, and I I have to say, that song is... Kind of a fabulous song. You know, you sometimes hear music that was composed by people who are involved in a film who are not, by the bulk of their career, say, considered composers. But that song is absolutely terrific and not only lays out all of the themes of the movie, but I think probably has a, a real grip of its own if you hear it completely independently. I mean, it talks about a really universal uh, way of looking at the world, where you think that maybe there is something golden, but no, maybe it's paint. It it talks to the difference between what people hope for when they look at the world around them, where they look at the future, and what often comes to them, which doesn't necessarily live up to expectations or desires.
3: And not only is that song good, but if you get to know David Carradine's uh, discography, the guy has his own style, has his own voice. He not only had his own style as a performer, which, you know, love or hate, boy, as a musician especially, he has a very recognizable style. And you're right, Maitland, uh, of most actors who, for uh, them, a music career is almost like an afterthought, you can't say that. Well, I'm not really familiar with Robert Carradine's
2: music very much, though I know he still plays, and he, he has been a musician for a long time. But even with Keith Carradine, I'm trying to remember the name of the song from Nashville that ended up becoming kind of a, a single from that film. And so, yeah, these guys, they definitely had some pipes on them. Yeah, the Easy. single is yeah.
4: I'm Easy, and that's a terrific, terrific song.
2: I knew you guys would know it. I just don't didn't remember.
3: I guess I um, disagree a little bit with Maitland regarding the film. I don't find sadness in every corner of this movie. There are certain stretches of it that are almost like an endurance test of cruelty. But what the movie does for me is it makes you desperate for these little rays of hope and uh, little acts of kindness here and there. And David Carradine's song, Opening the Head Credits, is one of those little rays of hope, one of those little flashes of uh, you know feel-good moments. You don't know you need it yet at that point, but it's one of those things, especially on repeat viewings, that uh, allow you to suffer through the, the tougher stuff.
4: Although I'm not sure that maybe it's gold or maybe it's paint is necessarily a flash of hope.
2: Kind of pulls the rug out from under you,
3: right? Uh, I guess uh, the, the the lyrical content of the verses, though, where the guy's looking for this land where the brothers don't fight and the dogs don't bite and you don't need wine and uh, all this kind of um, you know striving for niceness and pleasantness. And again, I'm, I'm grasping at these rays of hope. Don't don't rob me of them.
4: Right, not to be the damper on, on your effort to see that there might be a golden future, but.
2: The movie takes place over a period of, what, 17, 18 years. We start in 1970, and we start with Weasel, Brad in uh, Initially, I think, you know, of course, we see him in the opening credits, and we see him in this first scene, so I'm thinking that the movie's going to be about him, but it ends up, talking about pulling the rug out from under you. It, it ends up not being about him, though he is prominently featured in this first scene where he tries to hot a car and ends up killing this young couple who are uh, at the Harmony Hotel. And he is our introduction to Slew, who's played by Paulo Smith because he takes the car and the, uh, apparently steals the TV from the hotel, even though Slew owns the hotel <laughs> apparently, but, but to, I think to Slew, he owns everything. Everything is just there for for him to eventually pick up and turn a profit on it somehow. Even though he doesn't live the life of a rich man... But he is surrounded by his riches. He seems kind of like you know, uh, like Alibaba or something, where he just is surrounded by all of these things that, for him, have value. He lives out in the desert with Pearl, and he just has so many television sets, washers and dryers, and just all of these things everywhere that he's accumulated over the years. And he is the the, the lord of the manor when it comes to this. And he is the, the boss of the whole town. The, uh, everything in harmony is his. And really, a lot of this film is him kind of reaching out beyond, perhaps his uh, what was it? His his grasp, uh, his reach out outdoes his grasp or whatever, and he can't necessarily branch out of harmony. But he definitely has a hold over that town.
3: You did interpret the stuff as being for sale, though, right? You don't. Think oh it's yeah. Order. Okay. Good.
2: Oh, yeah. No, no, he's definitely not a hoarder. He's definitely there to turn a profit out and all this stuff. Though, I don't think he's going to sell that mortar anytime soon.
6: It's not for sale.
4: I think overall there's a very film noir feel to the town of Harmony. It, it's like the kind of towns that you encounter in, in Dashiell Hammett novels or Raymond Chandler novels, where the entire town is run by a person or a family who are deeply invested in enterprises that are not strictly legal but they really do own their environs and they own everybody who's in the town who is willing to go along with them and pretty much everybody who's not willing to go along with them is dead because it's a take it or leave it deal you know if you're going to live in this kind of town you are going to be part of it or you're not going to be part of anything anymore so there's a very to me film noir aspect to the setup of Harmony and the way in which SLU rules over it. Although in all its visual aspects, Sunny Boy is the antithesis of a noir film because it is all blinding, baking sunlight. It's all sand and desert as opposed to dark alleys and tall buildings. There are no shadows in this movie at all. And yet there is, I think, a very clear thematic parallel there you know,
2: just to to be uh, 100% fair, I mean, there were a lot of great noirs that were desert set. So we did have things like Desert Fury, and even I would say things like Nightfall, where the uh, the end of the film, the climax of the film takes place in a snowfield, which you can't get any more blindingly white than that for me. I mean, so they, they didn't necessarily all have to be urban set kind of things. And, and I know you know this, but I just wanted to let the The audience make sure that they know that we know this kind of stuff, that it doesn't have to be a city city film to be an, a film noir.
4: And that is absolutely, absolutely true. Noir was a genre that was infinitely... I, I'm not even sure. I think I might be with Paul Schrader on the idea that noir is actually not a genre. It's a style. And it's a style that could encompass a, a, a wide variety of narratives, including narratives that took place in the country, narratives that play out against snowscapes rather than cluttered back alleys. But there is certainly a tone to noir films that I think we're also seeing in Sunny Boy.
3: I see the film in the context of uh, cinema's fascination with people who live on the absolute fringes of civilization. In the modern cinematic age, that started with Deliverance. A couple years after was uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this family that was off the grid they had a gas generator, but basically they had no contact with civilization. They do have to throw the audience a little bit of a bone for credibility's sake. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they had the barbecue shack slash gas station. That was their source of income, and that was their connection with society, I guess. You know, Sonny Boy, I guess them owning the motel would be that connection. Mike, you seem to have interpreted that uh, he really does pull the strings for the town, which I'm not sure I got 100%. Uh, but he definitely, um, wielded enough power to be left alone by the law. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Remake in 2003 took it even further. I remember they, they had one of the, one of the people in this, uh, outlying clan of backwoods people, uh, actually were law enforcement, which I found a little incredible. But, um, the owning the motel thing kind of, uh, do you remember there was a film with Frank Whaley called Vacancy, uh, not too long ago? where it was the degenerate backwoodsman kind of people who were running a little motel. So I guess, uh, you know, Sonny Boy was hitting on that a little bit earlier.
2: The only reason I say that he has the town in his pocket is because he does have the police in his pocket. The one policeman who kind of steps out of bounds, he ends up destroying, uh, I, I can't think of a, a better word, he, he vaporizes with the mortar. And then when it comes to the mayor who wants to get a little too greedy, in Slew's opinion, he ends up unleashing Sonny Boy on him. So I think he's got all the power when it comes to harmony.
4: And I think one of the things that this movie does exploit in a really canny way is the fact that by the time Sonny Boy was made, the overwhelming majority of Americans lived in urban areas rather than rural ones. And there is a fear, I think, on the part of people who... Grew up in urban areas of what goes on in these little towns that one drives through, that appear to be half dead uh, towns with main streets where half the storefronts are closed down, towns that don't seem to have any business in the middle all, towns where you don't see people on the streets. As I said, as you're driving through, that feed a certain kind of paranoia about what goes on out there. And Sunny Boy is an absolute nightmare parable about what goes on out there.
3: Indeed, yeah. There's all kinds of films. Uh, Deliverance, uh, the pawn shop scene of uh, Pulp Fiction. Their horror works in the way that it reminds you that a lot of sick shit happens in this world when nobody's looking in behind closed doors. Bring out the gimp. I think the gimp's
1: sleeping. I guess you just have to go wake him up now, won't you? I kept getting a
2: feel of tourist trap while I was watching this film as far as that idea of the the rural nightmare kind of thing and just the way that Chuck Connors would play with people in that film. And you never knew exactly where you stood with that.
3: Not enough man. No, I
4: completely agree. And I I am, if I may say, the quintessential urban person who drives through little bitty empty towns and just thinks, wow, well, I hope we've got a full tank of gas because I don't want to have to stop here for anything. And it's something that, you know, occasionally my husband and I've had to talk about because my husband comes from West Virginia. He grew up in Morgantown, which granted is, is a city and a, a university city at that. So it is not backwater West Virginia, but... Fifteen minutes out from where he grew up, you're on a, a road called River Road that looks like something, you know, out of uh, out of an Erskine Caldwell novel, and I find that unbelievably creepy. And he's always said, "Well, you know, Maitland, this is just this is a city thing with you. You don't understand. It's not as scary as you think it is." And my feeling is, you know what? I think it probably is as scary as I think it is because God knows it scares the be- Jesus out of me.
2: So we've talked a lot about Slew, we've talked a little bit about Pearl, but we really haven't talked about Sunny Boy himself, which is the baby that Weasel unwittingly drives back to Slew and Pearl's place, and as soon as Pearl sees the baby, and luckily she's the first one who sees it, because SLU pretty much just wants to take the baby and feed him to the hogs, and Pearl is not having any of that. So after a little bit of a power struggle between the two, Pearl kind of gets her way and is able to raise Sunny Boy, but really, at the end of the day, it is SLU that is raising Sunny Boy, because there's not a whole lot of Love that's happening in this family, and there's a whole lot of torture going on in this family.
4: Although when Sonny Boy talks about his past, one of the things he remembers most vividly, you know, is, is the warmth of his mother's breast. So clearly that little bit of love that he is able to get from Pearl is a really significant thing for him. and it, And it's clearly the thing that makes him not another animal.
3: Mike Malloy, a- Ray of Hope, number 17.
4: There you go. And that is, I think, one of the little rays of light in this movie. That is why Sonny Boy is not just an attack dog. There is something in him that is human, and, and that's Pearl. Pearl did that.
3: Yeah, I forget, uh, historically, those kids that have been found at age six, eight, whatever, who are wild childs, um, have they been civilized uh, successfully, or does it always end badly? In, in any case, it doesn't end badly with, with Sonny Boy. We get the feeling that, uh, yes, spoiler, he is persuaded to be civilized in the end, and yeah, that is Pearl's doing clearly.
4: Well, I think he desires to be civilized from the very beginning, but it is held back from it, among other things, by the fact that he quite literally has no voice, because his voice is sitting in the, re- in the freezer uh, in the form of the tongue that was cut out. So, and not by Pearl. You mentioned earlier that this is a Frankenstein story. He very much is like Frankenstein's monster, who was created in the image of man and then treated like a beast. But ultimately there is a humanity in him that desires to not be a beast, to be a person.
3: Although you do wonder for a while, because in his voiceover he's he's talking about some of the lessons he's learned from his father, cruel, terrible lessons, and speaking about them as if they are, you know, valuable lessons, as if those are, you know, I'm uh, uh, so glad that at age six my dad cut out my tongue and taught me the valuable lessons of, lesson of silence. You are pretty worried about how he's going to turn out. Father cut loose
6: my tongue.
1: That'll
6: A present for my birthday. Safe.
5: A gift of silence.
1: This'll make you
5: perfect. A pearl, she put my voice in the freezer for safekeeping and then ate sweet cake.
4: It is certainly worrying. And, and he's been taught the lesson of being able to deal with pain, to be able to deal with torture. And yet, there is still in that voiceover a sense that, um, you know, he's like that man who walks down these mean streets but is not himself mean.
2: There's definitely a, a poetry to those lines. And then the delivery of it is very, very gentle. And I think that's very smart the way that they... Did that to kind of be that nice counterpoint to the cruelty of the world that we keep seeing.
3: Also, as a counterpoint, the uh, the very sweet music that is clearly a knockoff of um, the theme from Midnight Cowboy. I'm guessing that they used they scored the movie with theme from Midnight Cowboy as kind of a temp track and then hired somebody to do a sound alike. But yeah, that that accompanies a lot of the torture in one of those montages.
2: Well, that and then that kind of opening from, speaking of deliverance, the opening of dueling banjos over and over again, I was just like, okay, enough.
3: hear that kind of stuff, and you're right, both of those are sound-alikes, uh, you do think that maybe this was temp-scored with certain pieces of famous music and then, uh, yeah, rescored with sound-alikes. Oh, and
2: I did want to talk about uh, the other people in the town a little bit. I, I appreciate the character that Conrad Janis plays in the movie Doc Bender, and... Uh, in any other, I guess, kind of uh, to your point, mainland as far as uh, uh, film noir, in any other film noir, he might have been our hero because he's th- kind of the only person that stands up to slew even a little bit. But then he's got this great damaged past that they make uh, allusions to throughout the film and I love that he's just he's trying hard but he's never going to necessarily get ahead even though he's the he's the last man standing he and Sonny Boy, at the very end of the film so he does kind of succeed which is again unusual for a film noir that you know usually at the end of the movie it's it's worse for you than at the beginning of the film but it's uh his character adds something to the movie that really kind of takes it to another level for me because it could just be about this crazy wild family and, and the, I don't know if you want to call weasel and, uh, uh, and Charlie P the, the minions though, I guess they kind of are, especially when they take Sonny boy out on their own to use him for more crime. But that, counterpoint of having Doc Bender there, I think, uh, really takes us to a different place, though I wish there was a little bit more of him.
4: The thing that I love about Doc Bender is that he actually plays a part that is not uncommon in noir films, and that is the part of a doctor who has done something in his past that has made it impossible for him to continue to practice as a regular mainstream society doctor, and so he's wound up being the doctor to gangsters and gun souls and generally bad people, but who is still in, in a very real way committed to a sense of himself as a doctor, a person who's supposed to heal, a person who's supposed to help people. Now, Doc Bender's background is particularly bizarre because it has to do with transplanting monkey nuts into people. But, But the fact is, you can see how that might have been intended well because, frankly, I think all of us know that there is a history of people, uh, men specifically, looking for uh, restored virility by having all kinds of glands and and other things implanted into themselves to restore the potency that they feel they've lost. So that's not actually as wacky a thing as as perhaps it ought to be. And so Doc Bender is a a more sympathetic character than one might imagine. And of course, by the end of the film, he's proved himself a very sympathetic character in the the most deranged possible way, because that's the way Sonny Boy works. It's in the most deranged possible way.
3: Yeah, he's uh, Mike Malloy, Ray of Hope number eight, probably. But uh, the interesting thing is that... um Yeah, he's at odds with Brad Dourif's character in the film, and both of those characters, both Brad Dourif's character and the Doctor, are both pretty sympathetic to Sonny Boy. I like the scene especially where Brad, you know, Brad Dourif's character just wants to play with Sonny Boy, just to, you know, give him some diversion. Is that when he bites his thumb off? Yeah, yeah, the scene scene ends badly, but uh, the scene ends with conflict, but uh, the intent is there.
4: But it's also an incredibly sweet scene and an incredibly disturbing scene because, yeah, he wants to play with him, but he's playing with him like he's a dog. And, you know, that that flies in the face of what you've already, by that point in the film, begun to see, which is that Sonny Boy is is striving to reclaim every thread of humanity he can. And yet... He's so desperate for any kind of human attention, for anybody to pay attention to him in a nice way as opposed to beating him or locking him up in a shed. That
3: right, the alternative in that scene was a cattle prod, as I remember.
4: Exactly. He, he is happy to be treated like a dog because being treated by a dog is absolutely great by the standards that he has learned to live by.
2: And he, one of Mike Malloy's other rays of hope is the girl rose that... Sunny Boy ends up meeting when Slu decides that the town of Harmony is not big enough for him that he wants to branch out. So he loads up the ice cream truck that has a cage in the back of it and off they go into their one of their adventures outside of the city. And he ends up, Sonny Boy ends up meeting this girl with uh, uh, who comes by looking for ice cream. And she comes back a few times in the film. Though I have to say that I didn't, the first time I watched this movie, I didn't really realize that that was the same girl who comes back later on. So when this girl shows up in the desert and shows up in town, I thought that they were actually different. Women, so it took me a while before I connected them all together that they're all played by the same actress, and she just happens to show up in different places uh,
3: throughout the film. Yes, you just have to learn the difference between the blonde in the film with good teeth and the blonde in the bad in the film with, ba- with bad.
4: Yes, there are some very bad teeth in this movie.
2: Well, yeah, Savina Gursak, uh, as the blonde uh, Sandy with the bad teeth, who just is so vicious at all times and just wants to lead that lynch mob. And then Rose is definitely her uh, her opposite there uh, by being the blonde angel who wants to reach out to Sonny Boy and treat him nice. But, yeah um, – uh, uh, of course, at the end of the day, uh, uh, as we know with all Frankenstein stories, there is definitely a lynch mob. The, the pitchforks and torches are lit by the end of this film. Fortunately, and I have did, to say, by the t- t- time t- you t- see t- t- that
4: crowd yeah. gathering, it's really kind of a great thing, because it is staged in such a way that you cannot not relate it to your classic Universal Frankenstein movies. It is very clear that that is the angry mob with pitchforks and torches. You know, a, there's the, the metaphorical aspect of it has pretty much melted away, and it is exactly the same thing there. Well, let me go ahead and say one of the things that's fascinating about Sunny Boy is that on the one hand, it's not subtle. It, it is drawing on really familiar genre tropes and not hiding their origin at all. And yet, there is a, a kind of shocking subtlety to it in the way that it treats individual characters, primarily the character of Sonny Boy himself. I mean, yes, it's very clear, I think, to anybody who has seen a Frankenstein movie that he is Frankenstein's sad creature, uh, created by a man to look like a man, and yet doomed to be rejected by society, by individuals and by society as a whole. I mean, he's a tragic monster, and yet he's not a frankenstein monster he's a feral child the the kind of person who in any in most normal contexts would wind up in in the custody of child protective services at some point and be taken away from this horrible horrible family and yet the whole story in, unfolds in this kind of desert enclave where it appears that none of those normal societal structures exist. The only thing that exists is the town of Harmony, and Sonny Boy's father runs this town, and therefore it's made in his own psychotic image of the way things ought to be, and there really is no respite. There's no place for somebody to turn. I mean, somebody in that town who thought that maybe there is something really peculiar going on up at that house wouldn't even know who to call
3: i sometimes wonder films like deliverance the texas chainsaw massacre on up into the sunny boy films dealing with people who are really outliers on the just the fringes of civilization Backwoods films are made dime a dozen still uh because it's a very very inexpensive uh genre to to make and most of them are contemporarily set uh, I don't think, I don't know how you guys feel. I don't feel that they work anymore if they're set uh, in, a, in a contemporary setting because I think the world is smaller now. Everybody, even in the most remote, desolate mountain town or, or backwoods village or, or anything, they still have access to satellite phones now. And they, they still, the world is just a smaller place because of technology. So I think, you know, there, there's got to be a cutoff at some point. Uh, I, I don't know which side Sonny Boy falls on. These kind of stories are just not as credible anymore. I don't know how you guys feel.
2: I think Maitland would disagree with you because it sounds like any trip 15 minutes out of Morgantown is going to be pretty terrifying to her.
4: I don't think in fact that the fact that there is an enormous social services structure in the United States necessarily translates into a, a structure that catches everybody who needs help. I think there are still, and I think this based on things that I read in newspapers with depressing regularity, there are a lot of instances in which families are able to conceal enormous levels of dysfunction regarding particularly their children that you wouldn't think were possible in this day and age, and yet they are. So I don't find Sunny Boy the slightest bit implausible, frankly. It is certainly presented in an extreme way, but I, I don't find it implausible at all. And I think that's a tragedy. But I'm not entirely certain how you can fix that because, as you as you said, there is a superstructure designed to allow people to call a social services agency and report. You know, I know that the people who live down the street from me have nine children. Seven of them have never been to school. And I think that there's a real problem in that house. And yet sometimes dysfunction of that kind goes entirely unnoticed until either by accident or because somebody in the house does something or has something done to them, the police wind up involved and then walk in and say, whoa, okay, calling social services right now, there's an enormous problem
2: here. I want to go back to the Frankenstein metaphor again really quickly here and talk about the way that the film kind of turns it on its head a little bit as far as the idea that Sonny Boy is not grotesque though he seems to be a grotesque to the rest of the town. Everybody's afraid of him. Everyone uh, strikes out at him, or so many of the people in the town do. I mean, people have sport with him. When he escapes from his captivity, he runs across a couple who are having sex, and they decide to chase him down and have a little bit of fun by sticking him with a knife as they're running past him on, on a motorcycle. So it's interesting though that he is he's a very handsome fella and but he's treated like he is an animal. It takes a lot for people to see past that. And I love that moment. It's kind of like the the moment in Frankenstein where he looks down at the pond and sees his ugly visage. But in this one, he gets to look in some water or look at a mirror and actually see that he's not half bad looking and that he cleans up pretty well. One of the first first things he does when he attacks the mayor, after he attacks the mayor, is to wash himself, which he has never had a chance to do before. And when the dirt comes off, he ends up not being a beast, but actually a fairly good-looking man. And the other thing that I found interesting as far as the Frankenstein stuff is that at the end of the film, when the villagers have the the pitchforks and torches, that it doesn't, you know, they, they end up burning Castle Frankenstein, but they don't end up, you know, killing Frankenstein's monster. They end up killing the real monster. They end up killing Frankenstein himself by killing Slough and unfortunately killing Pearl as well, but by destroying the the environment that created Frankenstein, that created Sonny Boy.
3: In Carradine's memoir, he describes the movie by way of reference points to other movies. And he mentions Bonnie and Clyde and stuff, clearly in reference to the shootout uh, at the end. But he also mentioned Rocky Horror Picture Show. And what I think he meant by that was the cross-dressing of his character but what immediately sprang to mind was Sonny Boy himself. Because right? I, when I think back to the movie, for some reason, blonde, good-looking, muscular, I just put the image of Rocky from Rocky Horror Picture Show in his place. Because um, I, I, I've always thought of those two guys in the same way.
4: Well, yes, Dr. Frankenfurter is definitely making a man with blonde hair in his hand. He's
3: good for a living man. Attention.
4: He's, he's not aspiring to make a carnal house creature, and in fact, he's not. Nor is Dr. Frankenstein, of course, in the original novel. I mean, he is limited in a certain way by the place that he has to get his 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 raw material, which is carnal houses, puts together the best creature he can out of them. But of course, the thing that I think many people don't know, because I think Yeah, I don't think most people read Frankenstein. I think most people know the Frankenstein monster through various movie incarnations. Is that although the Frankenstein monster is not attractive, he doesn't look like a monster. He's simply ugly, which is kind of a horrible, horrible commentary on the way people treat each other. All that's wrong with him is he's ugly, but by the time he's unleashed on the world, he is in fact a gentle creature somebody who wants to be loved who when he finds a place to hide which is in a shed behind the home of uh, an older man who lives with his either his daughter and his son-in-law or the other way around who likes to read to them at night and the creature learns to appreciate literature by listening to them and develops an enormously delicate and sophisticated sensibility he's he's not a rampaging monster And I think one of the limitations of the imagination of many filmmakers making horror movies is that they can only conceive of the monster as something that's entirely other, rather than something that is actually more like us than not, but is simply unacceptable to society on some level or another, and often a level that is as superficial as they don't look good, they're ugly, so we want nothing to do with them.
2: I don't think that I'm too crazy to think that there's a definite Christ metaphor going on in Sunny Boy, especially when he's attacked by the town and he ends up in the desert three days later. I was just like, hmm, in the desert three days later. That reminds me of a certain holiday uh, around here. So, I don't know. Did you guys see that at all, or or am I just losing it?
4: Oh, how about the scene where he's in the church and winds up escaping with with the Jesus statue off the cross. I mean, I think that's about as, about as uh, clear as you can get with that metaphor. And even though it is incredibly obvious, the scene in which he's cradling that that figure of the crucified Christ is, I think, kind of moving.
3: It's very, very easy to invoke Christ imagery in a movie and call it commentary very easy. Like, there's one scene that I kind of just thought was like cheap commentary of the movie where they drive through suburbia and you see kids playing hopscotch and stuff. The character of Slough is saying, well, like, geez, suburbia, what a bland place. I hate it. Yeah, okay, I guess, I guess, but that's kind of cheap commentary. It didn't really add much to the movie to me. Although
4: for me as a New York City girl, I hate that stuff, so... I, I really do hate suburbs, and I always have. They, there is something profoundly unappealing about them to me, and I, I, I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with
3: suburbs.
4: But Don't,
3: don't get I, off on your anti-hopscotch rage again, Maitland. Yeah,
4: I'm, I, no, actually, I, I, I hopped plenty of scotch when I was a kid, you know, drawn in chalk on the sidewalk. Uh, but I find something very artificial about suburbs and always have, and that is very much the perspective of somebody who grew up in the middle of New York City, who grew up surrounded by buildings, who grew up with hundreds and hundreds of neighbors in just one building, let alone in the building next door on either side or the buildings down the block density of, of human population is something that's very familiar to me and it feels very normal to me. And in a funny way, I think evolutionarily it actually is extremely normal because from all I understand from my reading, our earliest human ancestors clustered together as soon as they found each other because they realized that you know we are the naked apes. We we don't have fangs, we don't have claws, we don't have tough hides. But uh, if we gather together in groups, we have each other and can use our better brains to figure out how not to get eaten by everything bigger, hairier, more clawed, and more fanged than we are.
2: If I had one complaint about the film, it wouldn't actually be the music. It would be that there is a point in the movie where I forget that Pearl is a character in it just because she's not on screen as much as I would like. When she comes back at the end, I'm like, oh, Pearl, I'm so glad to see you again. But for a little while, she disappears from the movie. And that's probably the only thing that if I could redo part of this, I would say – It would be nice to have more Pearl. But at the same time, I think keeping her out of it is also robbing us of that hope that we were talking about. Because she does seem to bring hope. And even at the end, when she's there with the the guns and everything, I was just like, yeah, Pearl will take care of this. She she can handle this situation. It may seem dire, but she'll get us out of it.
3: Well, for the sake of the film, Sonny Boy's defining relationship or all-important relationship is the one with his father, I think.
4: I also really like it when Pearl comes back, just because the first thing I think when I see her is, wow, you know, Pearl is a lot older. And that's not always a transition that you see in characters in movies, even when they're supposed to be older. They don't actually look much older. But Pearl looks older in particular because she looks even more determinedly respectable than she looked before. She's got her hair pulled back and she looks like a really respectable, a little more than middle-aged matron uh, living in one of those suburban communities who could be inviting you over to have coffee and maybe talk about a book that everybody's been reading. And to see her look that way, and then of course to see that she is nonetheless a pistol-packing mama who wants to defend her child at all costs, is is a really great thing.
2: I wanted to ask you guys about the end of the film because I like the way that they put it together where we unfortunately do get to see that Bonnie and Clyde-esque death of Pearl, but we don't necessarily see the end of Slough. We kind of go past that. We're, we're fracturing time, and I kind of appreciate that, that we kind of go past his death and then we, we we return to it as things are progressing with Sonny Boy. But what is your guys's take as far as the end of the film? Is there speaking of hope? You know, we've we've brought that up a lot on this conversation. Is there hope for Sunny Boy? Does he? Will he have any sort of a, a normal life after this movie is over? What do you think, Mike?
3: Well, when you were mentioning Fracturing Time, I thought you were going to ask about our interpretation of the moment we do go back and find out the disposition and fate of SLU. And I thought it was left ambiguous. Uh, I thought we were supposed to be questioning, is he uh, grappling, is he is he grabbing and squeezing Sonny Boy in anger, or is he hugging him? Uh, you know, if he's hugging him, that becomes Ray of Hope number 21. Uh, if he's not, then it's not. But, um, I don't know, how did you interpret that shot of the movie when you do, you know, when chronology does bring us back to, the tampering of chronology does bring us back to that moment?
4: I think my thoughts are I choose to take a more hopeful attitude towards the end of the film, and yet I can't dismiss the significance of the fact that the first word Sonny Boy manages to articulate is no. That doesn't seem to me to be hugely positive, so I am uncertain. I mean, on the one hand, I believe that by the end of the film we are supposed to take it that that voiceover that we've been hearing since the beginning is the genuine spoken voice of Sonny Boy. That it's not just some kind of internal monologue that we're being given access to that expresses what his hopes uh, and his perhaps optimistic estimation of the situation he's in at various points is. As an ending, I I find it very, very ambiguous. I'm I'm not sure.
3: But the tampering of chronology brings us back to the scene that shows, uh, in the Flaming Pyramid, shows Slough and Sonny Boy, uh, both still alive, and clearly that scene was isolated from the rest of the climax in order for us to focus on that one shot and... I guess question it, or at least pay great attention to it. And I'm still not even sure what to make of it. Was he hugging Sunny Boy out of love? What did you guys think?
4: Or was he hugging him out of possessiveness? Because you know there is that that lion that Lion King shot earlier in the film, in which he holds up the the little Sunny Boy against that incredibly dramatic, uh, you know, uh, southwestern sky. As though this is his little cub, and he has claimed him, so perhaps it 's not a gesture of love, but simply a gesture of possession, or perhaps it is a gesture of love i think I find it very hard to come down with an argument to come down to an argument that I could defend to the ground either way
2: what i 'd like to think is that he is going to be sacrificing himself for Sonny Boy that he 's basically going to be using himself as a shield and covering Sunny Boy so that when the fire finally consumes them, that it might just consume him rather than the two of them. But that's, that could just be wishful thinking on my part. A hug
3: of protection. What's with that pyramid? Yeah, that's – that. clearly, I mentioned those other desert indies of the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and none of them had the – forethought or style to have something as bizarre as that in it. Um, Either that was something existing that they found at a location or they had a really good art director and production designer because who on earth would have thought to have created a giant wooden pyramid pyramid to house stolen goods?
2: It just looks so good, and I love that it's there on that compound sticking out like a sore thumb that will eventually be bitten off. But it it just seems to me that it's just slew is is the lord of the manor, and just, you know, who else has a fucking pyramid? You know, it's just like, Slough must go out in the morning and be like, look at that pyramid. Anybody else got a pyramid like that? Mm-hmm. just me. Fucking
3: Ramses.
4: I mean, do you think he's imagining that this pyramid represents the immortality of his line in some way? Because certainly that's what the pyramids were all about, right? They were about, they were about a form of immortality, uh, granted in the terms of mummified remains, but I mean, there's something incredibly grandiose about that pyramid.
2: Well, and at the end of the day, it is the protection of the line, because that's where Sonny Boy kind of crawls out from the wreckage of it.
4: And yet, do you think that's what Slew imagined, since he finds his son lacking in every respect?
2: No, there's only a few moments where I think he's actually proud of Sonny Boy. I think whenever he commits a, a murder for him, he's happy. That's probably about it.
4: So it's kind of a fascinating ambiguity in the middle of a movie that... I think is ambiguous in a, a tremendous number of ways, a fascinating number of ways for a movie that looks so much like a, a like a classic exploitation picture.
2: Yeah, and it does. It it feels older than it is. Like when I watched this movie the first time, when I finally saw it. I had to look, you know, I I did say that it was it was shot a few years before it finally came out, but only a few years. It wasn't a decade or more. But there are moments in the film where it feels more like a 70s film than it does an 80s film. I mean, I really, every time I'm just like, really, 89? This came out in 89? And then I always wonder to myself, it's like, how did I miss this? This was 1989. You know, I'm, I'm 17 years old at the time or 18 years old. how did did I not know that this movie was out? This seems kind of like custom-built for the group of friends who would go out and rent the strangest things on videotape that we possibly could, just totally under the radar, never caught it.
4: Well, you know, speaking directly to that, uh, as I I said this evening, I watched it with Frank, and uh, somewhere around the middle, Frank said, wow, these these 70s movies were incredible, Uh, and, you know, I said, well, actually, this is not a 70s movie, but you're absolutely right. Everything about it feels like a movie that was made in the 70s.
2: Everybody on the, 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 the villain side of the picture, I mean, Carradine, Smith, Dorf, Lassick, I mean, the, even Conrad Janis, all those guys. Very big in the seventies, you know. And if I see Lassig and Dorf in the same movie together, yes, they look a lot older than they did in F- Cuckoo's Nest. But I'm just like, oh wow, okay, yeah, these are some really strong seventies actors going on in here. And, and of course, Carradine you know, just was was huge back then. And then even with Paul Smith, it's like Paul Smith. I remember mostly from his turns in the early eighties with with Popeye and with Dune, and then of course Midnight Express. But You know, it's just like, wow, he uh, he he feels like he belongs more in the 70s, you know, and then I guess also sorry, I I forgot Crime Wave, you know, but these are all like early to mid 80s films. He seems more like a a holdover from the 70s to me.
3: Paul Smith in this movie, I had never noticed it in other roles, but especially when he grins and he has that little glint in his eye, he looks like a chubby Ben Gazzara.
2: I'll do you one as well. There's a point where Sidney Lassick has gray hair and a mustache, and he kind of has those bug eyes. I was thinking Jerry Kalana when I was watching him. Who on earth is Jerry Kalana? Yeah, he was he was really big in the 50s. And he had an amazing singing style. He would start the notes and then wait for the music to catch up to him. <laughs>
5: You hear the patterns of the Chiang Khen from Rhino to
2: Mandalay. On oh, the road
7: to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder from
1: across the bay. Ah, yes!
4: Now get Well, I kind of want to just wonder about about the director, frankly. Who is this guy?
2: Well, you are in luck, Maitland, because we are going to take a break and play a few interviews. The first is with the director, Robert Martin Carroll. The second is with the writer, Graham Whiffler. And the third is going to be with Sonny Boy himself, Michael Boston, who's going by Michael Boston these days, not Michael Griffith. And we will be back with those after these brief
1: messages. Let me recommend founditemclothing.com for the best way you can get your geek
0: on. Found Item Clothing has everything to proudly display your nerd love from Star Wars to Star Trek, from TMNT to BTTF, from S
1: to XXL, and with Halloween right around the corner, Found Item Clothing has a wide range of costumes from Snake Pliskin. To the dude.
0: From snake pliskin
1: to the dude. From snake pliskin to the dude and everything in between.
2: And everything in between. Visit founditemclothing.com today.
1: Before it's too late.
0: Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. And also the only first run seven day a week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of current, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro Detroit area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features in a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, zip code 48201.
7: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema, come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday.
8: How did you get into the business? How did you get into show business? Originally, I was a painter, a fine painter. I I was studying uh, as an artist. And then when I was like 18, I just got this urge to learn actually photography. I wanted to, to go in a different area. And I originally was going to study at San Francisco State Photography. But they couldn't take me the semester I applied, and they told me next semester. So, I mean, I always grew up watching movies. I was the kind of kid to stay up all night back in New York watching the late show, the late show two, late show three. And so I I, I always loved movies. And so when I didn't have the opportunity, I'm not sure why, but I applied to the University of Southern California to the cinema department. And I figured, well, I'll just go, if I get in, I'll just go there for a couple semesters and then go to San Francisco State. Uh, but I did get in and what happened was, of course, I immediately fell in love with doing it and I was very lucky. I went there with, uh, John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon. I was very lucky in that I, I won, a a big scholarship when I was there, a William Morris Agency scholarship. And, uh, you know, like most things, if somebody tells you you're good, you kind of say, hey, maybe I should do this. But I, I had some very nice experiences with the films I did there. And I realized how much I, I love film and how really I had studied film all my life without really being aware of it. Uh, um, I mean, it was the kind of thing where I, I still remember when I was younger, if an no old film started within like two frames or, you know, immediately I could tell... Uh, if I'd seen the film ever, you know, it just like was lodged in my mind. And so I, I just really found a, an affinity for it when I was at USC and I, I did very well there in the film department. And um, how can I put this without, I don't want to sound like Donald Trump and i bragging, but uh, I, I, you know, I beat out a number of the top students for for the scholarship and I, I got a lot of attention from that. So, it, you know, it kind of reinforced my my feeling for film And I just never really stopped.
2: What were some of your early projects like, especially once you graduated?
8: Right before I graduated, I met this woman at a going away party here for her. She was going to New York uh, to work on a play. And I got very interested. And I eventually followed her to New York. And we got very involved. And she got me into theater. So then for actually a couple of years... I did more theater than film projects. I did some small projects, some small documentary projects in New York, and I did a couple small films. And we actually we started a, a group that was a, a nonprofit group trying to make uh, films for the New York school system. And that company existed for many years, even after I left it. But when I was with her, I really got interested in the idea of understanding actors better. Cause to be honest, what I realized was I knew camera angles. I understood lighting and all, all those things and colors cause I was a painter, but my knowledge of actors was not nearly as good as as it should have been. I mean, my, my films, the acting was fine, but I didn't know how to talk to actors. And when I did my first play, I realized that I realized how much more I had to learn. So I spent uh, about three or four years doing plays. I, I did a play off-off-Broadway in New York. Got very nice uh, notices. And then the both of us, my wife and I, we were married by that time. We moved to Los Angeles. Somebody had actually optioned a play, uh, play of for this for a film. So we went to Los Angeles and we started a theater company in Los Angeles called the New, New Playwrights Foundation, which is actually still going in L.A., and I was a co-artistic director of that theater for about four years, Then I started to really try to concentrate back on my film career again, and my wife and I, we had a company called Daycar, D-A-Y-C-A-R Productions, and uh, my wife be- became actually very successful uh, TV and, and feature film writer. And uh, I was an associate producer on some projects, and I, I kind of ran our company and did things like that. But it took a long time before I actually got my first feature. And I did a short film during that period called Tail Horse, Tail Rider, based on a famous story by Catherine Van Porter. And it, uh, I think it was a very nice film, worked with some wonderful people. Uh, it was a big production, uh, it, it was actually, at one we, point, we closed down the main road in Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena because we, we created uh, Pasadena like 40 years ago. And so we had all these old cars we got. And so we actually closed the, the road down, which is very unusual there. They don't usually like to do that. I made that short film, and I love that. And uh, I tried to get a feature from that, but it, it just took a long time. I, You know, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story which. Ha- It's not uh, necessarily flattering to me, but I think it's kind of interesting. So I've got a short film. I've got a very good agent and sending me out and things aren't really quite coming. But then my agent says, Hey, uh, I'm going to get John, John Houston says, well, look at your film. I said, wow, you know, he's one of my heroes. That'd be great. So I remember going to this, I was not in the screen, but I remember being outside and afterwards, you know, I didn't really get to speak to Houston. And then, I asked my agent, what do you think? What do you think? He said, he didn't like it. So, you know, it's it's a tough business. And that, that hurt, of course, having someone who I, I admired, not liking it. Uh, that reminds me, I had done a short earlier called "Litter Meets Strong Heart. I guess you might say it's ahead of his time. It was actually about a transvestite and his best friend or her best friend. I did that Wow, it must have been like nineteen seventy three, seventy five, 75 or something. But it, it was I, I thought it was kind of a fun film. It was just a fun thing, and uh, about a guy who's a postman and really likes to dress up and drag, and people at work don't know about it, and his friends. And uh, but I had a great the great part about that was I worked with with uh, this guy named Andrew Marx, and he was the grandson of Groucho Marx. When we uh, had the premiere of that at a small theater in Hollywood, Groucho actually came to it. And yeah, that was really something. And afterwards, it was a comedy. And Grassley said, yeah, I liked it. Of course, he, at that point, he was very old, so I don't know if he actually completely <laughs> knew what was going on. But just just to have him come to the film of mine, that was really exciting for me. So my wife became very successful. I really put, a, put four or five years in that. I was really concentrating on her career, trying to get things going. And my career kind of took a secondary step. And then I started to push my career again, Again, I was like, taking meetings, but things weren't happening. You know, in the meetings, the first thing they would always ask me is, okay, what stars do you know? Because they always wanted to you know, bring in stars. And I, I, even though my wife and I had worked with a lot of people, we we're, weren't the, we're the kind of people who go to a lot of Hollywood parties, so we didn't make close friendships. I couldn't, I couldn't call up somebody and say, hey, you in this thing. And so I didn't get these projects, and that was probably only part of the reason, you know. So it didn't work out. Then one day, though, I got a phone call. From uh, a man named Paul Mason, and it turned out my my lawyer at the time, a guy named Paul Brindze, B R I N D Z E, who uh, he had sent my my short, the one I mentioned, Peel Horse, Peel Rider," to him, and Paul liked it. He said, "You know, I've got a project here. You might be really good for it. Come down, take a look." So he was the head of production for Trans World Entertainment. And I went down there and I read this script called Sunny Boy. And I have to be honest, it was was the kind of thing where I remember like sweating reading it because it was like, this is really fascinating. There's something really great here. It really didn't, wasn't really me completely. I needed something else. Something was missing for it to really be something I could direct. But I knew there was something great there too. So I said, yeah, I want to direct it." it. It was like that the same day. I got that project. So that's how Sunny Boy came about. We did Sunny Boy. I don't know if you've seen a recent Blu-ray release, but Graham Wolfler has commentary on there. And Graham's still pretty mad at me about that because he wanted to direct it. I understood that and, and I actually remember asking him a couple of times, how come you're not letting the guy who wrote it direct it? I don't really remember their answers, but they just didn't want him directing it. So in that case, I said, well, if he's not going to direct it, sure, I'll direct it. But I need to make Some changes. Plus, the producer of it, the executive producer, was a guy named Ovidio Asinidis. One of his claims of fame is that he produced, I think it was Piranha 2 with James Cameron, and he fired James Cameron from that. So he used to always tell me, if you don't do what I like, I'm going to fire you like I fired him. He came in with his ideas, and we talked about it, and really the changes were really originally dictated by him. He wanted certain things changed. He wanted more to soften the Frankenstein area of it. I said, well, can I make it like Frankenstein, but a little bit of the Elephant Man, a little bit of, of Clockwork Orange. I said, but I don't want, if I do a story as Frankenstein, I don't want him to be a monster. I wanted somebody I could relate to. And that's how I work. I try to get into the minds of the, of the actors, and the characters. And uh, he liked that, so that's basically what we tried to do. And of course, Graham is is very upset that I made those changes and that I I changed some aspects of it. But I was trying to keep to the heart of what he was saying, but just make it something that I could direct. You know, every director has in his own thing, and I feel kind of bad that Graham still harbors a grudge against me about that. Interesting when I was making that film. I can tell you a couple funny stories about making it too. So when David came on the say, it came like about four days after we started shooting, he was doing something else. When he first came and met me in the office, he like walk right by me and he said, okay, let me meet the director. Like he had no idea who I was and I said, uh, well, I'm the director. So we started talking and we just really hit off. Part of probably the problem was because I've done martial arts for many years, even at the point I then, I had done it for like 15 years. And of my motel room, I had them clear all the furniture out except the bed in Jason's small room so I could just exercise and stuff. And when David saw that, he just kind of flipped out. Ah, oh, that's so cool. So we started to immediately bond. And then I was talking to him one day and I said, you know, David, I see this character like John Wayne, the voice and everything. I said, but he's, you know, he's in drag. So I don't want you to play him as feminine or anything. I want you to play him, you know, except like John Wayne Moore. And he loved that concept. And we, we just really, really had a great time working together. So that was fun. Some of the negative things were, well, first I should say, video brought an Italian crew over. Most of the crew was from Italy. And that was actually great because they, they were real artists and that was fun to work with them. So he was trying to maintain control that way too. So when we are filming, I remember the first day I worked with it, Paul Smith, who played Slood. You know, he's he was a, very formidable guy. You probably remember him Midnight Express. <laughs> I remember Paul doing a scene there and I had earphones on, but even though I, I was hearing him and I am saying, what's this guy doing? Does he know what he's doing? Because the way I work is I knew what I wanted to film and I didn't film extra and I knew where I wanted to cut. And It was in my head. Plus, that's a way of controlling the picture, too. If you basically have it shot the way you want it, you know, they can't give it to an editor and say, you know, replace a long shot with a close-up if I only get a close-up for a particular scene. I shot it very tightly that way. I remember Paul just, he just thought I had no idea what I was doing. We eventually became great friends. I think he had a good time on it. But it was a fairly tough shoot. There's a scene there where Slew holds up a baby during sun down. I never it took us like 20 days to get that shot because I, I wanted a certain look and I discussed it with the, the, the DP, this great cameraman. I always forget his, his name, but he's a wonderful uh, director of photography. It took us like 20 days to get the right light and just perfectly, but if you've seen the film, which I, I take it you have, it's a beautiful shot when he holds up the baby. Near the end of the film, <laughs> right before the big fight takes place, When Slew gets mad at Sonny Boy and says, You caused all these problems. I had a huge fight with Ovidio because Ovidio wanted what these, uh, a castrating tool. He said, Have Paul castrate him. I said, I don't want to do that. I don't think it's in character. It's, it's, and we had a giant fight. My my wife thinks we we got into actually a physical thing. I don't remember that, but I do know that after that a video and I just communicated to our lawyers. <laughs> and so that was that was you know, it was like something an old movie, right? It was we really literally got, I got a note from saying you we will communicate only to lawyers from now on. But video saw himself as a director. He really wanted, he was hoping to take over, but people I transformed wouldn't let him do that and they were happy with what was going on. So we finished the film and the other interesting things after we finished it, when you look at the credits There's a guy named Ed Mitchell who has credits for casting, but Ed actually never did any casting on. I'm not disparaging Ed. He might be a great casting director, but he really hated the script. It really bothered him. And he said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. So we casted ourselves. And uh, I I did all the casting with the producer, the line producer, uh, Peter Shepard which I like doing. I I love working with actors and Peter and I also drove all over the mid not Midwest over like Nevada and California looking for locations. And I I love picking my own locations. I I like getting really hands on involved. So after the film was done, I remember asking them, I said, you know, this is a very unusual film. Who's your audience? Because I mean, I made the film I I to make, I was passionately involved in it, cared about the characters and work with wonderful actors like um, Michael Boston who played Sunny Boy. Just wonderful actors. But I knew it was an unusual film. I couldn't figure out who, who the market was. And I just, they said, don't worry about that. But of course that turned out to be a big problem at the time. So after the film was done, I had to go to Italy to edit it. And I say had to because I edited it with this Italian editor who worked for a video. And so I had no power. It's not like Pallante people think, oh, the director has all his power. I had no power, and I was in a, a very small attic room where they had the editing machine, and the guy smoked cigars, and I have nothing against cigars. I have had some myself, but this was a small room, and I was getting nauseous, and I, and I finally said, I, did it. I asked the guy, I said, you know, when I'm here working with you, can you not smoke your cigar, and right here I'm getting sick? And he said, no, I'm going to smoke it. Tough luck. And then when I asked a video, a video said, if you don't like it, go back to America. That was a working situation. So it was not overly pleasant. Uh, plus my, my editor, I think he did a fine job, but he didn't really like actors. I remember him saying to me, I'm you know, i better than all the, the directors I, I work for. He said, I, I can do it too, but uh, there's only one problem. I don't really don't like actors, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> so I had to really be careful that the acting scenes came out the way I wanted and we did a cut which I never got it uh, like a first cut exactly as I wanted they never gave me that but I got a first cut that was close I I was pretty pleased with it and then I went back to, to the United States after a couple months doing that and I went finally to a screening to see it to see a print and I just remember being so shocked because they had cut it all up and they had taken out a couple of important scenes. It made it a, a little confusing at times. And I was very upset about that. And I called them up this before they released it, obviously. And I, I remember saying, I don't remember who I called, but I remember to whoever I called, I said, you know, I understand you had you had to make cuts. for so one thing, when they when they first my version got an X rating from the most MPAA is when they still did X ratings. I said, you know, I I understand you have to cut something from it. I don't understand why they're doing that, because the things you cut don't seem to me to be upsetting that much. But why don't you let me work with the editor? I'll I'll work it out. I'm more than happy to, to work with somebody. And they said, nope, we don't want you doing it. So the final thing that came out was not the version, even close to the version I really wanted. It was a very controversial film. It came at a time that in California, they were having all these situations with children being molested, and there was a big case called the McMartin case. There was even a TV movie made about it. But people were very sensitive about child abuse. There, I mean, of course, we all are. We're still sensitive, but there, people were like going crazy about it. And and some people took it the film totally the wrong way, and they took it as a film that was promoting child abuse, which totally freaked me out because. In my mind it was the opposite. It was a film about never giving in to any kind of abuse, any kind of abuse either physical or mental. And the concept that if you had good in you, that good would always override, the m it was always be there. You couldn't take that out of somebody. I was just totally shocked. Uh, and because of that it was actually pulled from a bunch of theaters and it just got a very very limited distribution. That didn't really help my career too much. The other interesting thing that happened afterwards, before I did my second film, it took a long time, but I had a had a number of films almost came about. I every director goes through that. I got a call from a company called IRS Media. It was a small company back back in the eighties doing very interesting kind of artistic films. They called me and said, come in, uh, we want to talk to you. And they gave me again, they gave me a script to read, and it was a script called Hurricane. And I read the script. And I remember saying to my wife, "Wow, this is an amazing script. This writer is fantastic. Whoever directs this is going to direct a good movie, but I think I can make it a terrific movie." And so I called him up and said, "Yeah, I want to do it." I went went and met with the head of the company, a guy named Paul Coleshan. I think he was he was uh, involved with us uh, with the sting and and the group his group and uh, I met with Paul. And we had, we had lunch, and Paul said, Okay, you want to do it? I said, Yeah, but we shook on it. And then about two days later, I, I got a call from the, the guy who had brought me in there, a guy named Steve Reich, R E I C H. And Steve said, yeah, I am so embarrassed, but well, we have a problem here. I said, What is it? And I, and I, I, I forgot to mention it. So I had got, I, the one thing they said, You have to meet with the producer. She has a final say, so she has a contract where she has a final say on this project. She must have brought them the project. So I said, sure, I met with her and I, I remember thinking, huh, the meeting felt a little awkward. I don't know why, you know, cause they already told me they want you to do it. And so, so I got a call a couple of days later and Steve says, well, very embarrassed, but she won't approve you. She has some other director in mind. She, and then, she, you know, we want you to do it, but she won't let you do it. So that film, here, here's a clutcher. So that film, the title was later changed to One False Move. And that was the, the, the script written by Billy Bob Thornton. And that film became Siskel Ebert's favorite film of the year. And it was an amazing script. He's such a good writer. Uh, and that, that hurt a lot. I mean, it, I never held that against a director, you know, because again, that was the thing. That was his fault. They, 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 the, the producer just wanted him to do it. And so that was very disappointing. So then it took a couple more years before I, I kind of had a, 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 another project. see. I had fun at thinking of these things. I had another project that kind of similar in that they called me into some company and they had the a film written by the guy who wrote Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it was a musical that took place in, in, a, in a mall. And they asked me if I wanted to do that one. And that was another one where I said, yeah, this would be really a lot of fun. You know, I'd I'd like to do a a musical, a comedic musical. And, you know, he had had a certain touch that it was just, his stuff's just fun. So again, I, I get a call and they say, you know what, he also has a contract where he didn't have to let them make it and he wanted to direct it. It took about two months of finding back and forth and he just wouldn't let them, let anyone but himself direct it. And they didn't want him directing it. And so the project never got made, which is too bad, because that was really going to be a fun project. And then, of course, I had my favorite project I tried to get done over the years, and maybe they didn't ever get made, except one of them that was, that was based on a play that I had directed in New York called What Color is Love. I eventually got the money for that, and we made that as a very small film called, and we changed the title to Baby Love. And that was my, my second feature film. So that's kind of like the arc of (laughs) where things went.
2: So when it came to Sonny Boy, you were talking about uh, some of the objections that the MPAA had. What were some of the things that they were finding too violent?
8: It's funny, they didn't cut the most violent things out. They cut out a scene where Sonny Boy goes and meets the blonde girl that he's attracted to. And she's at a, a, a school for, not a school, she's at a home for, Pregnant girls, girls who, who've had problems and, and been kicked out of their homes. It was kind of a, a goofy scene, and he, he chases all Sunny Boy chases all the girls away, except so for her. And they Rose and they roll around in the mud a little bit. And there was that, and there was a short scene under a bridge where there was somebody had written helter skelter, and we didn't put that there. It was already there. And I thought, wow, what a great thing to have Sunny Boy wake up and have to sign above him, you know, because that's how his life kind of is. And they cut that, and at the birthday party, they cut a big piece of that, and this is probably the thing they most objected to. When they have the birthday party, they pull Sonny Boy out of the box, and there's voiceover of Sunny Boy saying, "And my father cut my tongue out and put it in the freezer." And we actually shot them pulling him out and putting him down. And you don't you don't see it, but you know what's happening. And I guess that just freaked them out, and they felt the, that by cutting that they would probably get. A, uh, an R rating, which they did. But when you look at it n- nowadays, compared to what goes on nowadays, of course, it's all very tame.
2: Was there anything that ended up in the movie that you didn't necessarily want to end up in the movie? Because it doesn't sound like the best relationship with the editor.
8: <laughs> More than the editor, it was really the producer of caused the problems. Yeah, the music, although I think it's pretty interesting. I had really wanted them to approach Ry Cooder. I wanted really slide guitar. That's why they put guitar music in. But it wasn't quite what I wanted. I I, I mean, a lot of people like the music, and I think it's fine. But I really wanted them to approach Ry Cooder and and see if he would do the music. And they just didn't bother doing that. I just wanted something a a little more personal, as opposed to what they did. And uh, I wanted music more like they had in Paris, Texas more right could have didn't use it to that. And the other thing was the producer put his girlfriend at the time in the part of this kind of a she was kind of a female hermit. And her name is Sabina Kershik, I think. Uh, the real name. And she was a really nice person, beautiful young girl, and he was had, having a relationship with her and he and so she, I didn't get to cast that part. He he cast that. And then he wanted to direct that scene. So we had niche fights over that, and, and he wasn't supposed to direct it. But what I did, I worked with Sabina, and I got her, so she was actually pretty good in the character. And it was funny. She was a very beautiful girl, but I also gave her very bad teeth. I got a prosthetics to give her really bad teeth because uh, I, I didn't really think that somebody so beautiful should be living in this town because it's supposed to be a town of all misfits, so that was great. She she was happy. She loved wearing the teeth, you know. Because I guess when you're that beautiful, you want to show you can do other things. But then, a video waited till we were shooting a another scene, and he scheduled that scene at the same time. So he he shot some of that, and he said, "I shot it in your style." But and he to some degree he did. I think he did a decent job. He tried to copy me. It's still not all well what I did, and I I, I would have liked to have done the whole thing. And the other thing that they did, which really bothered me, that I was very particular in picking out extras and such. And one thing I think that maybe I dislike the most in the film, I mean, every filmmaker is always never completely happy with their work. But uh, the thing that really bothered me, there's a, a scene when Sonny Boy is running from everybody and they find him kind of sleeping in this Garage and the whole town starts coming after him, and they jumps on the crowd and tears people apart and runs away. But I didn't shoot that, and I wouldn't have shot it the way he shot it. I didn't particularly like the way he shot it. The biggest problem though was he put a bunch of people in there that I would have never put in there as the extras. He had a couple like young toe-headed kids that looked like they could have come from L.A. and just a few regular people, I and mean, there were a few the right type, but he. He threw some people in that just didn't really fit, and that it just really. Every time I see it, it, it strikes me that that they shouldn't be in it, and so that's probably the the thing I I dislike more most. But much of the film I still like, even though I even though when they cut it, I felt by cutting those couple things, it made the film a little at times a little choppier. But I I still kind of like the way it works and, and I love working with David David was just so great to work with
2: How did his music come to be in the film?
8: We were just getting along great you know we hang out together and everything I got friendly with his wife and I knew he played music he would play me some of the songs and I said to him I said David why don't you do some of the music for it you know because I was a little, as I said I was a little frustrated that I didn't get the to get exactly the music I wanted for the background. because They already told me they weren't going to try to get right through there. I said, David, let's use some of your music. I really like it. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we went to a little studio in Hollywood. I think it was at the Crossroads of the World. And we recorded uh, some of his songs.
2: When it comes to the voiceover of Sonny Boy himself, is that actually uh, Michael Boston doing that?
8: It is, Yes. It is. My wife and I were trying to figure out the casting, and we had seen Michael Boston in a, I think it was a Hallmark Hallmark commercial. I don't think he even spoke in it, but we just liked his face so much. And I wanted someone who had a, a, almost an angelic quality. I said, oh, well, let's try to get him. And that's, that's how Michael got into it. He, he's a mo- wonderful actor, totally committed, totally committed.
2: The, the cast is just amazing. I mean, so Martin. many great actors, so mm-hmm. many people I'd love to see. I mean, do you mind if I ask you how it was working with some of these folks, like a like Sidney sure. Lassick?
8: <laughs> Sidney was great. I actually found that years later that I'm very good friends with uh, like his niece, but I, I had no idea for like 10 years. But Sydney was great. He was you know kind of like you see him on, on screen. He was a little bit ir- irascible at times and, you know... And I remember there's a scene in the truck where he's wearing a cowboy hat. I really wanted to wear a cowboy hat. And he really did not want to wear it. And remember we, we, that went back and forth and he finally wore it. And, you know, I, I like working with but, you know, he, he had, he had uh, in his mind what he wanted to do. And he he could be, he would let you know if he didn't want to do something.
2: And how about uh, Conrad Janis?
8: Conrad and I became very good friends. Now, I cast Conrad, part of the reason I cast him was not only did he give a good reading, because some really wonderful actors read for it, but when he gave me his resume, the first page of the resume wasn't all his TV work, it was his play work. And I said, well, this is an actor who really wants to act. And that really made me like him a lot. And so I, I cast him in there, and we talked a lot about the character, and uh, he was very easy to work with. You know, he, he, he was Maybe one of the easiest people to work with. His wife was on set with him, and she's a, a very dynamic, great person. And uh, we all got along terrifically. Uh, at the end of the shoot, they made a, a booklet for me about the whole shoot, and we, we've kept in contact all these years. I, I just spoke to him about three, four months ago, I think. I
2: have to ask about Brad Dorff. He always mm-hmm. brings so much energy to every mm-hmm. role that he's in.
8: Oh, what a great actor he is. Uh, Brad is it's interesting. Now, when you first meet him, he's very, very quiet, you know. But then once he feels comfortable with you, or at least the experience I had, once he felt comfortable with me, Brad loves to talk. At first, you know, it was really very inward. I, I guess he's kind of trying to judge. He was trying to judge me as well. But he was just fun. We, we went around to, like, secondhand clothing stores and picked out his, his clothes together, the things he wore. And, uh, it, it, it was just fun to work with. Uh, I, I, I trusted Brad a lot. I was, it, it was interesting because I remember trying to talk to him about the character and say, do, do you want to rehearse this? And he said, he said to me, you know, sometimes the rehearsal great, but sometimes it's better not to. And he said, he said, I don't think this character needs it. And I said, okay. And so I went along with him up on that, and I was glad I did, because he 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 gave a certain freshness to the character. And at times I let him just ad lib, uh, like at the end of the scene where the mob comes and says, "Let's get, let's go, let's get him," and the girl with the bat teeth said, the end and says, "Yeah, let's get him," and. Brad reveals his thumb, but ended as soon as the script ended as soon as he unwrapped it. But I just let him keep talking because I knew he would just bring something spontaneous out there. And I, I love that scene for that reason. He was always one of my favorite actors, even before I made this film. So it was so great casting him in this. Originally, originally he didn't take the part. And I was talking to some other people who like, uh, but like Bud Corp, I was talking to him also about the part. And then he became available again, and I just jumped at the chance to work with him. I was-, I was so happy to get him.
2: Now, I know you and your wife had worked a lot when it came to um, her career and everything, but how was mm-hmm. it working with her on this as you're the the, the film director? Because you had-, you had directed her in
8: plays, correct? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, she she has a small part in the film. By the way, she plays the doctor at the end of the film. It was actually a very good experience. I've done other things with her script. When it's her scripts, is a little harder because telling her I want to change the script and stuff. It, it's harder because you know it's very hard for writers to let go in that that way, and particularly if they're dealing with somebody like family. In this case, because it wasn't something that came out of her, uh, because she you know she did a few changes in the script and she was just really there to support me and, and so she was very easy to work with the, the only problem I had with that was uh, a rumor went around the set that I was having an affair with uh, the the lead actress and I wasn't actually she was having an affair with someone else on the, on, the, on the set but my wife heard that and that caused huge problems for me as you can imagine so she was kind of mad at me for uh, months and she, uh, until she actually found out who the girl was actually having an affair with but I guess the whole set was talking about me and the girl, because, again, the way I work, I, I get very personally involved. You know, I'll put my arms around people and I'll pull them aside and talk, and, you know, uh, privately, but very intimately to people. But I do that with all the actors. But I guess if you're on a film set and you're expecting things to happen, you might misinterpret that.
2: Baby Love was, was hers. That must have been an interesting... Yes. Um, was that where you kind of uh, um, would get into trouble if you tried to tr- change her stuff?
8: Yeah, that was much, much more difficult. I feel that in that one, because I felt restrained, I didn't take some chances I should have taken, particularly at the beginning. I think there's some problems at the very beginning of that film. And I bring that on me because I just was... I was trying to be really faithful to the scripts you wrote. And I basically shot shout out the way she wrote it. I mean, occasionally I, I did a lot of rehearsal on that. Occasionally I'd come to her and say, you know, this is working this way. Can we make these changes? And she would make them. But I did, I felt much more constrained about making just saying, I feel creative about this. I want to, want to be this way. On Sonny Boy, I, I I felt that you know, I could do anything I wanted. On this, I on Baby Love, I didn't feel quite that freedom. Uh, working with her as an actress, though, on the other hand, was very easy. She's Really easy to work with as an actress. So I never had a problem with that. But changing things in her script, yes, definitely.
2: I had heard on the commentary that um, she had helped out a little bit on some of the, the dialogue on, on uh, Sunny mm-hmm. Boy. And, you know, Graham Whiffler is, is the credited screenwriter. There's also mm-hmm. a credit that I keep reading now and again and on different websites of a Peter Desberg writing additional oh. dialogue.
8: No, that was just a joke that the, that they, they we put in because he's a very close friend of my son's. He's a psychologist, and I had spoke to him about certain character things, you know, just trying to understand things better about children had these problems. And stuff. So, uh, just as a joke, uh, we put in there additional additional dialogue. It was totally a joke. He didn't do anything right. He, he, he likes the credit though. <laughs> you,
2: you mentioned a little bit about Paul Smith and and mm-hmm. just that it took a little bit for him to to kind of warm up to you. Mm-hmm. Once you got him on your side, how was it working with him?
8: Once he got, I got him on my side. He was he, he took direction and he has this great presence. I mean, he was a, he was a huge man. And even during the film when we had to keep taking on his pants, he kept getting getting more weight, getting bigger and bigger. We actually had two conflicts. And one of them was the one that really made him come and work with me better was we were shooting that dinner scene where they had that kind of scrawny rabbit thing. And he I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. During that scene, Paul so Paul, he, that's what, I was shooting it basically in a master I just wanted to do a master Paul really wanted me to do close-ups Again, that was a, that thing where I, I didn't want to give close-ups Because I didn't want them to be able to cut it So I was just shooting it in a master Because I thought it was really fun to see it up there And to change without cutting And Paul said, oh, I want a close-up You've got to give me a close-up You can't just shoot it like this said, No, Paul, this really is how I want to do it And he got really upset So finally I said, you know, Paul, I'll tell you what we've got enough you can go for the night and we'll we'll finish it without you and that kind of freaked him out he said uh maybe that's not such a good idea all right do whatever you want and after that, he, he just trusted me i guess he just wanted to see who was in charge and he, he got very easy to work with after that except for one thing he to, he has a big he has a knife in one seed. and i went to a local knife smith and i said i want you to make me a, a really nice knife for to use in the film. I'm kind of a small guy, so it didn't occur to me that not, the knife that seemed pretty big to me, the pole would look like a toothpick. So I got, gave him this knife. I knife. I, I thought he'd love it because it was a custom-made knife with a bone handle. He looked, he said, this is awful. This is, you know, I think he said the toothpick, but he said, this looks like a toothpick to me. I eventually, <laughs> I eventually uh, found an old scuba diving knife I had that was like really big. But and he was right actually. When I looked on his hand, it, it just disappeared. So he, he got pretty. That was that was probably the, the only real conflict we had. But uh, you know, he liked to talk about the films he had done, and, he, and uh, he liked to go out to restaurants and stuff. So you know, I like actors. So even sometimes you know, there are, movies can be difficult. they can be difficult times, but ultimately, I like actors, and so I, I always end up getting along with them.
2: Yeah, because I had heard that. Carradine was very difficult to work with, but it sounds like you got along with him famously.
8: Oh, fantastic. I actually had one producer ask me after I'd made that. I think it was a guy who made uh, the Ninja Turtles or something. But some big producer was one who hired David and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, how was he? Was he drunk? Would he have a problem? I said, no, it was great. And I, I've heard that too. I've heard he's gotten terrible things with, with some directors, but he was like a cat to me. I mean, we were, we were actually we actually wanted to make another movie afterwards, and, and it didn't work out. The script they brought me. Interestingly, it was a script about professional wrestling, and this was years before the the movie The Wrestler came out. And the reason I didn't do it was, it was a script that really showed uh, professional wrestling to be real. All well, the wrestling real. I said, I said, you know, David, professional wrestling isn't real. And he says, yes, it is. And he really believed it. And I said, well, I can't. Do a film like this, I, I, I can't do it unless I, I know it's not real. I and mean, I would have loved to make something like The Wrestler, which is terrific. But they wanted to really make a film that showed it as a, a real sport where they were really on the up and up. And I, I just couldn't do that. And it was too bad because we really wanted to work together again.
2: The movie being so controversial upon its release mm-hmm. and everything, I mean, what did that do for you and for your career after it came out?
8: Oh, it was, it was terrible on uh, my career because a lot of people wouldn't actually even meet me. I lost some friends over it and some producers wouldn't meet, meet me. I lost an agent because of that because some, some big producer told her that she, she you know if I, she represented me, she wouldn't work with her. I and mean, that was how upset people were. I mean, it's hard to imagine that, but the people were really freaking out about it. And so it totally stopped my career for about, you know, six years. It took me a long time to kind of get some people to give me some money again for a film. Well, It was very disappointing in that sense.
2: I remember the movie was pretty tough to see for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then now with the Blu-ray release, it's supposed to be kind of nice having this resurgence of this movie that maybe you thought you wouldn't necessarily hear about again for a long time.
1: Yeah, it's,
8: it's funny about Sunny Boy in that a lot of people tried to really kill it off. Uh, and you mentioned how you didn't see it. it was, that was because uh, it was owned by, uh, I believe, MGM and MGM UA, and they would not let anybody show it. Uh, the, over the years, I, I was approached at least four or five times by small companies that wanted to get the rights and distribute it and make, DVD, make a DVD of it and show it at that way. And they wouldn't give them the rights. And at one point, I, I had my lawyer contact them, I had a very, very top lawyer from a really great firm, and he called and, and spoke to me. He said to me, "They they just don't want to do it because they feel that it's not worth it's not worth the money to them to, to make it to put it out there. Besides, if they did, other directors who want, who they're holding films who insist they they let their films out, and they just don't care. They don't. They're not going to let anybody have it. And uh, if, as as recently as I think, 2014, I had a call from, I was contacted by a French distributor, a small French distributor that wanted to get the rights to distribute it in in France and hopefully eventually to some other countries where it wasn't shown. And uh, they wouldn't let him get it either. So I, w- I was so thrilled when I heard that, that they actually made a deal uh, to finally release in DVD. That was just, to me... It was something that came out of the blue. But the funny thing is that people never stopped talking about it. It, it had this life of its own. I think maybe because, I don't know, it's just a very intense movie. I, t- I tried to be very honest in, m- in my directing, and so it wasn't gimmicky. And so it just seemed to have lasted, and people never forgot it.
2: What came first, the music videos, the writing?
7: I had no idea what I wanted to do, no idea at all. I took this photography class in uh, junior college, and the teacher, he was a tough son of a bitch. And his line was that if your photos are kind kind of boring, kind of dull, kind of mediocre... The reason that they're like that is because you as a person are dull and mediocre and boring. And when he would have uh critiques, people would leave the room in tears. It was a blood sport and I loved it. It was it was the first time in my life I'd gotten objective truth because you know going in the 60s you get all this subjective hey, it's Just uh, everything's relative and blah 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 blah. this was objective and he was cruel and people cried and I loved it because I it elevated expression to something that could be mean and deadly I, I just loved it so I took some uh, television classes and then went to San Francisco State and studied film and then I started painting houses And then uh, an old buddy from high school knocked on my door in San Francisco, and he needed a place to stay. He was kind of in a bad way. And uh, he would go over, he'd ask, he asked, he'd say, I know some guys that are kind of into films and stuff. You might like these guys. You want to you come over with me? I have to make an errand over there. So he took me over to this kind of bad part of town and this kind of industrial section. And there were these four guys, and they had just uh, rented this space, and they were kind of building it out and trying to figure out what they were going to do. They had this desire to make films. And so we got along really good. And my friend went over there a few times over the weekend. What I didn't know was and this is what this is what started me off what started me off in the film business was cocaine because my friend had a stash he had a pound of coke that he had hidden in this warehouse. Nobody knew it at the time. And uh, I didn't know it, but he'd go over there to get some to sell it or whatever. And I just remember him staying at my house. And he was very, very tense because he burned a lot of people. And he didn't have enough money to pay off the people that he bought this pound from. And he couldn't sleep because he was doing coke and because he was so anxious. So I remember just trying to go to sleep at night, and I could hear his stomach growling in the next room all night long from tension. Well, anyway, I got to meet these guys, and they were the residents. I started hanging out with them and we did projects and one thing led to another and I started off and rock, doing rock videos for them. And my friend that introduced us, he went off to prison. That's kind of how that started. P- cocaine. But, but, but more so it was, it was a matter of synchronicity and, uh, when opportunities there to grab at it. And that's, that's what I did. And, you know, I tell people, they say, well, uh, I say, well, I used to be a house painter, and then I became film director. And they say, well, how'd you make that jump? And I said, well, there was an ad in the paper. That's what I tell people. I just followed an ad and, for a film director. But, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. It was in my mind, and it just the right circumstances presented themselves.
2: Now, you say cocaine to me, I'm thinking, what, early 80s, 81? Or was it earlier than that?
7: This was 19, uh, probably 72.
2: Oh, wow. So, way earlier than I thought. So, this was when the residents, I mean, they started, what, 69? So, this was, they were pretty much in their infancy.
7: Yeah, they were a pupae at that point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, what kind of uh, 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 music videos and, and work were you doing with these guys?
7: Pretty much uh, whatever I wanted. It was it was a a marvelous situation. There was not a lot of money, but they had purchased a old brick warehouse. My first job with them, official job, was remodeling the outside. I did steel sculpture and mosaic sculpture and stuff like that. And then they. They had mentioned maybe wanting to, you know, make a film to some of their music. And I thought, aha! So I built an office space inside their uh, building and just basically started working there. What was so nice was I had a studio next door. So I could spend all the time I wanted building whatever I wanted to build to shoot. The weirder it was, the better. Since I knew how to run film and film cameras, I was able to shoot everything on film, and we just turned out a, a string of r- fairly darn slick short music films. Because originally they were distributed on 16, and uh, then uh, they started showing these things on, on TV. And so they got renamed to, to being music videos, and they were shown on TV.
2: You were able to
7: go full-time then doing this? No more house painting? No more house pay. Oh, yeah. Complete full time. It'd take me about, uh, sometimes two months to do a video. And I did it all myself. And I, you know, edited all my, I did everything myself except the days we actually shot. It would bring in a regular crew for that. But I did the, all of my own DP work and, and then have to edit it. And it was all done on film. So it was really difficult to edit slow. But yeah, so I had unlimited time. I was basically on a stipend uh, working there. It was uh, making very little, but enough to survive. San Francisco in the early seventies, or this was actually the late. So this is about seventy-eight, seventy-nine when I started with that first piece I did. I incorporated my photography and did a whole series. Uh, it's kind of a photo, black and white photo montage. It's called Hello Skinny. I found this guy who I wanted to be my star. He was walking down the street with a group of people. There was this kind of bad, mean, old transvestite that lived in the neighborhood. I lived in Bernal Heights in San Francisco. And it, was a, it was a rough and tumble neighborhood. Everyone knew everybody else. And it was a cr- crazy kind of old... Transsexual that uh she uh she ran um houses for uh mentally handicapped people and basically what she'd do is she'd get a lot of old men and people with uh mental disabilities and uh, pile them into an old Victorian house and steal their disability checks and then feed them gruel and basically kept them captive. But they didn't know that. And she was one of her boys uh, was Bridget. And, he, and I saw him one day. Oh, my God, I got to have him. I got, he's got to be my next star. So I did a, a casting and that's somewhere available. You can see the actual uh, I did a tape videotape uh, rehearsal slash casting with him just to see how I'd work in front of a camera and he was great and we shot a little bit and then uh, he told me uh, that he decided that he'd rather go home and live with his mother in Cincinnati I said what? He said yeah I'm leaving today I'm going to go on the bus and, we're, and I hadn't filmed hardly anything, and I said, oh my god, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, I said, Bridget, Bridget, you got to give me a few hours, so I got him into the studio, and I just shot his head, just shot his head from every angle I could, and then I followed him with the, with my camera down to the Greyhound bus station, shooting all the way, gave him a little prop, and... Uh, later on, I was able to composite his head onto a friend of mine, and we went down to industrial parts of the city at night and shot uh, the background plates and then collaged it all together. And that was uh, that was hella skinny.
2: Now, I know San Francisco has been great, great city for film. So many great artists coming out of there. Who were some of the folks that you would, I don't want to say influences, but who were some of the folks that you liked when you were uh, coming up and, and thinking about doing films?
7: Oh well, it was, it was a, it was a palace theater and that's, that's what Gassett got me started. And the palace theater, uh, was amazing. They had midnight movies and they had midnight movies and they had the cockettes. And, uh, I'd go and watch the Midnight Movies of the Cockettes every single week. And it was, uh, you know, the Dolly's and Shindaloo, and, and, uh, and, and John Waters was making his first film. So he'd always premiere them there and then got to see all the John Waters stuff and, uh, early Polanski and, uh, stuff like that. Not, I, I didn't have uh, much, uh, following for the local, uh, t- uh, Film artists. So that was, most of the people I liked. Were from out of town.
2: Now, once MTV starts, does this kind of open things up for you? Do other people start asking you?
7: Before MTV started, there was a couple of I think, Night Flight or Night Live, Night Flight, I think it was, and that was uh, on one of the networks. And when they started showing them on the networks, well, we did. We got our films transferred to uh, videotape. Well, I started. That's what started bringing me down to LA because I wanted really good colorists to do the transferring, and they just didn't have them in San Francisco. So we'd come down to L.A. to do all our, our film-to-tape transfers, and we started getting them out there. You know, I guess they got a really good response. I At the time, I had no idea. So I was just getting them out there any way I could. They did get to MTV. Some of them, they, they were, they were strange, and, and and some places I know in Britain that one was the Tuxedo Moon got uh, censored. A lot of times they were censored. They wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't show them because they were uh, troubling. Uh, the one in the one in uh, the Tuxedo Moon one was censored because they thought it mimicked uh, the hunger strikes by the IRA. Uh, because there was a scene where uh, somebody in the tuxedo moon, there, there, some members of the band are spreading some brown thing on the fl- on the walls, and another guy with a obsessive compulsive disorder is trying to clean it off constantly. They thought that was the uh, the the prisoners at the time in Ireland were uh, spreading their shit on the walls, and they thought it was a secret homage to IRA, which it really wasn't. It was it was more autobiographical. <laughs> I know
2: that you worked with the residents for so many years, and then even when it came to um, uh, Ronaldo and the loaf. Now I know that they were kind of friends with the residents, so that kind of makes a, a easy transition for me thinking about how you would work with them. But some of the other bands w- that you worked with over the years, I've I've read that you worked with. Uh, well, I know you did Oingo Boingo, but then did I read right? Red Hot Chili Peppers and Yellow as well.
7: Not yellow. Never worked with yellow. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, did their first video. True men don't kill coyotes. Uh, a, a great group of guys too. I really liked them. You know, some of the musicians I liked a lot. and Some of them I didn't like. Uh, kind of like everybody. Um, I did one uh, for a band that I really liked too. With Forty Five Grave. Not not real big main and big mainstream band, but really cool people and the record guy came to me Mick came to me i think it was his capital i forget the big EMI big big label they signed 45 graves and they picked their single and the single was called Party Time and it was about a true incident and they sing about it you know it's all described in the lyrics about some parents that have a 12 year old daughter and they burn her with cigarettes and rape her and that's the party and I, I say, I said, Mick, I, I don't think this is a good one, you know, to do a video on because I don't think you're going to get. I think you're going to run into a few difficulties trying to get that on the air. And he said, No, 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 I'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And uh, yeah, sure enough, nobody wanted to air it. It's just like it's it's still out there, but it is suppressed because it's 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 kind of a rough song. Now, how did you get into screenwriting? It wasn't cocaine, it was a crazy person. Uh I got a call one day from a friend of a friend. I I didn't know who he was. He said, Graham, I'm uh interested in de- I'm a producer, uh movie producer, I'm interested in developing some uh some film scripts and I was wondering if you had any ideas and whether you could tell me any of your ideas. So I set up a meeting with him later that day and I just happened to have a couple of treatments that I'd thrown together. He liked one and it was kind of like the residence where he was willing to pay me a little bit of money to write a screenplay. And I ran out and got one of the first IBM computers because I just, I can't type. I make so many mistakes, a little bit dyslexic that just old fashioned typing was was murder because there'd be more whiteout on the page than there was page. So I knew computers would be a thing. So I got a computer and wrote the script and... I didn't know what I was doing. I just sit in my room writing a script, and the sucker sold, and it was uh, that was Sunny Boy. And anyway, so my producer at one point was a big Hollywood producer, which, which I, what I didn't know was he was giving me the, the the little bit of money to pay me every month to write. He was getting this from this girl that he was living with. That basically he was servicing her, and she would give him money. She was this big, fat, ugly woman. And this was his, his job to service her. And she got tired of it. So she threw him out. And I didn't know all this was going on. And he ended up at a flophouse hotel downtown LA. And I went, I went to see my producer there. And he was in this single room without a bathroom. And, you know, I said, don't worry about it. This is just all temporary. This is all temporary. So, but, but he was crazy. And so I finished a script and he decided he just hated my guts. He had me to, uh, lunch in Hollywood one day. He said, Graham, I want to have lunch with you. I need, need to talk to you. I said, okay. So we met at, uh, Bob's big boy in, in, in Hollywood. And I sit down across from him and he goes, Graham, I just wanted to get you here because I wanted to tell you, you're a slimy asshole. You're just a slimy asshole. You're horrible. And he went into all this. I just, and I just unloaded. I, I, the guy was crazy, so I, I said, "Well, sorry you feel that way." He got the script sold to uh, a video, but uh, you know, it was a, our relationship. Let's say was spoiled, and um, you know, I, I I used to have fun threatening him because he was so crazy. But anyway. So that's that's that was Sunny Boy. That's how Sunny Boy got made.
2: Now I heard that the idea came from a story you heard when you were a house painter.
7: House painter, yes. The story was I was up on on the scaffolding in San Francisco, painting away an apartment building with uh, these three brothers that had moved out from Indiana and started a painting business. And we're about three or four stories up and. He said, "'Hey, you know we had this story from uh a hometown. It was just uh it was about this guy. He told me the story about this 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 guy in town that would wear an overcoat, and everyone was scared to death of this guy because they knew underneath the overcoat he always carried a sawed off shotgun, and he was crazy, and he would kill anybody for any reason, and he had been raised up." Out on this farm that was out near the state line, and it was everybody knew that stolen cars were brought to this farm, and then they would be it's kind of like it was kind of like an auction place, but it was all stolen. So the stolen cars would go to this farm, and from there they would be sent off to different states to be sold again. And they this kid was the kid that they they had from the farm, the stolen car farm. So I just I just uh kind of came up with the idea that he was uh, abused and turned into a Frankenstein because I wanted to do a Frankenstein remake. But instead of it being uh, the the, the monster created by uh, science and experimentation, uh, this monster was created by trauma and cruelty. The idea was he was looking like a monster because he had been so thrashed and beaten and and told his face was pretty much unrecognizable as a face. Where
2: did the character of uh, Pearl come from?
7: Well, Pearl came a bit from, uh, the, the, the transsexual in my neighborhood. I, I, pulled some from her. And then, uh, then the, there's a little bit of innocence to Pearl, too. And, and that came when I pulled, I pulled that and the name from, uh, the, uh, Night of the Hunter movie. There's a little girl's name's Pearl. So yeah so it was it was just it was kind of just the, uh, a collection a lot of, a lot of that movie uh, I was living at the LA at the time but I was remembering back to Burl Heights in my neighborhood and I lived across the street from a uh, biker gang Sons of Hawaii, and so a lot of them made th- their way in there slew was right out of uh, the, the Sons of Hawaii. A lot of the incidences, the the the, uh, the the characters' attitudes and and such came out of the Sons of Hawaii, and then uh, then Pearl. She mostly the the transsexual in the neighborhood where I who I discovered my first star, uh, Bridget.
2: Now, once you've got the screenplay written and your producer now hates your guts, right? What happens with the screenplay? What what goes on from there?
7: Uh, he got it sold. Uh, really quickly too. I mean, it took them two months. I and people were talking about it, you know. And, and I was getting invited at the parties, and they go, they wanted to meet this guy that wrote this weird screenplay. And I, you know, and I I don't know what's going on. I I go to parties. It's nice. It's nice to be recognized. But I really, you know, I, I just create this stuff and put it out there, and then people react to it. So. So he got it sold really quickly to a video, and the whole idea was I was going to direct it. I mean, that's why I wrote it. I'm, 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 I'm a director first and a writer second, And but he sold it to this guy, and it was a video, and he I went in to, to argue my case. I'd just seen Blue Velvet, and I went in to say, hey, man, you got to let me direct this because it's going to be ruined if anybody else touches it because it's a very unusual piece. A video was sitting in his office, and he was smoking a cigar, and he's got the big open shirt with all the hair, ch- chest hair and gold chains. I mean, he's that producer. And so I say, A video, man, you've got to let me direct this film. If, if you don't let me direct this film, it's like giving Blue Velvet to Blake Edwards to direct and and Vito and, you know, doesn't miss a beat, takes a puff of his cigar, he said, well, if Blake Edwards had directed that movie, Blue Velvet would have made some money. <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't get to direct it. And then the director, he, he found somebody that would do what he wanted, and, oh, my God, oh, my God. It's a Frankenstein movie, but they thought, well, let's make the monster really handsome. And from there, it just went downhill. But, yeah, so... So yeah, Danny got it sold, and <laughs> this is this is kind of how uh, how our relationship. When I was, on, I was on I was on a set and I was uh, doing host raps for a TV show. And it was, uh, it was a difficult, it was a difficult, uh, job in that it took ed, ed, every second. And I had my assistant uh, director come up to me and, er, I think it was assistant director, or was, uh, one of the producers came up to me and said, there's a man here that says he, he needs you to sign a document. And I said, "Oh, that's probably Danny. That's our contract for the script." And I hadn't, I hadn't seen the contract. I mean, I just gotten a call the day before that he wanted me to sign it. I, I didn't know what he, I, I didn't even read it. So I'm sitting here working, and I said, "Well, you tell Danny I'm, I'm busy right now. You know, and I'll, I'll see maybe in a couple hours I'll have time, but I can't take time out right now. You know, it'll either have to be at lunchtime if no." nothing bad comes up i'll have lunch but if, if not it won't have to be even later Because i can't stop directing i can't i can't walk away from the set this director comes up about a half hour later. He really needs you to sign it now. He's got a notary republic with him. I said, Well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry they're going to have to wait. So I, I have a cooler heels for a couple of hours. I finally get a little brief time and I go in there and I, I, say, I say to the notary public, Okay, you're notary public, and I want, I'm going to sign this thing here. And I want, I want you to understand that I haven't read it, I haven't had an attorney read it. I don't know what I'm signing. But this Schmo here is forcing me to sign it. So I want it, I want you to be the witness that when I when, I, when we sell this thing I'm going to take my cut, and the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a 357 Magnum. I'm going to buy a really nice one. I got it already picked out. And, and if I get fucked by signing this, if it turns out that it was like a really bad mistake and I'm really fucked, I'm going to take that 357. And I'm going to shoot this fucker right here, right in the head. <laughs> and then he's going, ah! <laughs> but he, you know, that's, that's, that was our relationship. So once a video
2: tells you to pretty much hit the road, are you involved with the project at all Not or... at all
7: not at all not at all. I had a friend i had a friend uh well that's how writers are treated uh in l a and uh and it's and it's a big mistake and 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 a video made, made some just horrible movies i mean just horrible movies but uh I had a friend at Transworld Entertainment, which is the studio that he he did it. At, and uh it uh, produced it, and uh, so my friend would tell me, "Oh, they're going off to location to shoot so I get a little little bits and pieces, but other than that, it was total blackout. I got a letter years later from the director. And it was really a sad, pathetic letter. He was apologizing to me. He said, I'm really sorry. I know you're not going to like the way it turned out. It wasn't my fault. They made me do these things. And, and then they told me if I even tried to talk to you, they'd fire me. You know, so, <laughs> so yeah, They they kept me in the dark. And. And then I did finally get a screening. It had been released. It hadn't been released yet, but I got a screening because my friend at, uh, the at TWE set it up and I brought my friends and it started. And I just, it, within two minutes, I knew it was just not very good. And I just sat I just said, I am gonna kill that director. And it just, I just sat there fuming through the whole thing. Cause it was, it was, Oh my God. Oh my God. It's like, you know, it's, if you took, uh, if you if you redid Frankenstein today and you know you put Justin Bieber in it and no makeup, you know what do you got? <laughs> what
2: was your first tip off when you're watching this that you're just not in the same world that you had
7: created? It came really early on. though. I have to watch the movie. I I, I, I can remember it when I see the movie. Oh God, this is this is the point, <laughs> and it's and it's literally within five minutes, ten minutes. And then it just and it it just spirals downhill. I mean, it it goes. It gets more and more ridiculous. And people's girlfriends and wives are written into the movie for no reason, but they wanted to give them a part in a movie. And it's just like, oh my god, oh my god, what's this? Oh my god, as, as watered down as it was, it was still there was enough of it that was really disturbing. I mean. It, that enough of my original stuff came through the, the, you know, people would, the, the censors didn't know what to do. They knew it was a naughty movie, but they couldn't, there was nothing one thing they could point to. And they say, you can't show that, but they had to, they trimmed a bunch of stuff in the edited version. It didn't make any sense because there was nothing really there that was bad, but uh, the tone was uh, problematic. Anyway, so poor old, the poor old director, You know, years later, he credits being driven out of Hollywood because of the movies. I made that movie, and no one would talk to me anymore, and I had to leave town.
2: Well, one thing I'm curious about, I mean, here you are working with The Residents and all these great bands for so many years. What would you have done? What did you have in mind as far as some of the musical cues for the film?
7: Oh, God, I don't know. I have no idea. That's the last thing I think about. Uh, the music is is just kind of this magic that you sprinkle back in. Uh, so no, I, I, I as far as the, the Sunny Boy was first thing, that would be the be the last thing. I I'd, I'd, and and I'll experiment with all kinds of different music too when I'm when I'm doing stuff. And I'll do that in the edit room. You know, lay in different kinds of tracks to see what works. And it's really hard. It's really hard uh, because sometimes things just don't work. I've had uh, had one movie scored, and we just took it and dumped the whole thing because it just wasn't working right.
2: When does Doctor Giggles kind of enter into this? Are you already kind of done with with Sunny Boy, and is it immediate or is it a few years later?
7: Uh, no, it's, it, no, I've done I finished Sunny Boy. Sunny Boy's out, and um, I decide I'm going to write another script. But I'm going to make this one even more offensive because then nobody will be able to direct it but me. That was my, my plan. I was going to write something that was so toxic and so nasty and so twisted that no one in their right mind would want it and that it would just be mine, mine, mine. So I sat there and I came up with this thing. And, uh, and the same thing, I got a a big time l a agent and I was going on all the rounds and oh my god dealing with uh dealing with it was for a while it was with Joel silver and dealing with the uh the development people in the studio system was really really dispiriting i walked i remember walking into one uh meeting and uh they had uh you know all their development people at this one studio sitting around a big oval table. And they had me sit down and the woman who was the head of development said, well, I want to start this meeting off, Graham, and I want to be on a very cordial. We love your script. We think it's a great script. But I want you to know that I, as in my position here, I would never allow a film that we made to have a scene where there's scab picking in it. And that's the first, and then and then so then that was the cue, and everyone else went around. Well, yeah, you can't have this, and then you know, it was like they were like each one had a scene that you couldn't have because oh, you just can't put that in a movie. That's just not right. And then well, so what's left? <laughs> so yeah, so so I ended up uh, this, I ended up losing Sunny Boy too. I mean, uh, uh, uh Doctor Doctor Giggles, Mister Giggles, I lost that one too. I got a big pile of money so you know it didn't hurt as bad but uh but then uh, what i was able to do is we kind of redid it and that's what deadly end is
2: yeah i was curious how much of what you wrote for dr giggles is what ended up
7: being on screen character names that's it pretty much oh wow (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's what I said what I saw i this this studio wasn't even as nice they I mean they, they they actually they sent me a VHS copy I think a year or two after it hit the theaters and I had to go see it in the theater myself and it was just it was just they they wanted they wanted a a regular horror movie and they just kind of picked the different pieces from other movies and try to jam them in it wasn't from my mind it wasn't entertaining i sat in that theater by myself pretty much it was a bargain matinee and i just watched it it was like oh this is this is kind of this is kind of lame it's not I, I the few audience people are in there there was very little excitement because it was all regurgitated nothing new so well what was that
2: experience like for you finally being able to get into the director's chair for a feature film and do Deadly End?
7: Uh, it, was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was a really, it was re- really tough work, um, because the budget was so low and, uh, we, we put so much on screen, but it was, uh, But, you know, it's like I've I've been doing a lot of directing, so it was just another directing job. But it was nice because it was a feature and it was, um, you know, something I'd written.
2: I'm surprised that you didn't just get somebody else's script and then, you know, completely change it just to fuck over somebody else.
7: No, you know, because that's that's too much work. And scripts, scripts are really hard to be really good. They have to come from a kernel of truth. They have to be grown around something that's, that's, Solid. And, and what happens a lot, and I've seen it, and I've, you know, people, I do script doctoring, and, you know, you'd get a script, somebody's had an idea, and then it's gone through 30 rewrites, and by the time it gets through 30 rewrites, it's like this weird mush. So I, I just soon start from the beginning and just start fresh. What are you working on these days? I'm working on a crude true crime story which I can't talk about but it's a, it's a true crime story and it has, it has the thing I like in it it has uh, the bad brain syndrome where this person has definite, uh, problems and they cause him to act out
2: yeah, I have to tell you um, I didn't necessarily call it out before but I absolutely love Songs for the Swinging Larvae it's so good
7: thank you if you know what it is uh, uh, modestly speaking i think that's the best video ever made uh just modestly speaking no it's it's, it's just uh, i just, it was that was just serendipity that whole the whole production came together i I can't believe i they even did it um but uh you know that was based on a on a true story a child kidnapping up in the bay Area. And uh, you know, I'm a big time newspaper reader, so i clipped that article and it was just a you know, absolutely bizarre sick story. And uh <laughs> I clipped it and went and showed the people at Ralph Records, I said, This is this is the next this is the next video. <laughs> it's later read it, and they go, Oh my god, okay, whatever.
2: Yeah, I can really see a lot of that kind of playing into some of the the ideas of Sunny Boy, at least with the uh, the stolen child and the, well, of course the the uh, woman in drag kind of thing. So, it, and God, the the use of black and white and color in that video is just gorgeous.
7: Well, thank you, thank you. That's uh, yeah, that's uh, me shooting it all, and that's me building all those sets and <clears throat> having the time. To, to to build the kitchen and then come up with the idea of blood everywhere, you know, and just, you know, the, the, having the time to be able to go to the Goodwill to pick up a stove and a refrigerator to remodify and redecorate and, and all that stuff, that takes time. And, and that's what I had, which was just precious. and. You, I, uh, most production, you can never do that because it all has to be done quickly and it's done by a team and it just doesn't, you don't get that, uh, that same degree of uh, integrity. That, that video has twisted a lot of minds and I it was in, a, 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 several times people have come up to me and said, you know, you totally screwed up my childhood because I watched that video and it just, it's given me nightmares ever since. And I had people, you know, in, in at a film uh, festival for *Deadly End* in, in uh, Brussels. And this woman comes up to me, and she just starts gushing about how all the trauma she suffered, but she was happy to suffer it uh, from seeing from seeing uh, the *Songs of Swing* Larvae when when she was a kid, which I thought was nice. I, I suppose that's a very high compliment well i, I personally i really you know the the human the human fascinates me and what what creates a human what makes a human act the way they do fascinates me and a lot of it you know always goes back to childhood and a lot of times it goes back to trauma so I, that's one of the, the things that i kind of like to i like to play with a little bit in in my work
2: Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been terrific.
7: Well, um, thanks for finding me, Mike.
2: I was looking through your CV a little bit, and it seems like before you were an actor, it looked like you were actively on your way to being something of a jock.
5: Oh, all the way. Yeah. I always wanted to be, uh, you know, a high school or a college wrestling coach. Yeah. I love wrestling, you know, amateur wrestling. How did you get into the acting? Well, I always kind of wanted to do that too, but I was actually really afraid to do it. You know, I fell on my face a few times trying to do that. Then I, you know, I got to the point where this is what I really want to do. And wrestling is over for me. You know, you only live once. So uh, go do it. So that's what I did. And then you went full bore. You went
2: uh, right into the uh, Acad- American Academy of Dramatic Arts.
5: Yeah, I I um always wanted to. I mean, after I did some research, I always wanted to go there. Wanted to go to the one in New York actually but couldn't afford that. So I came out to um you know, to the west coast and um I was just there, you know, for, for a year and, and um I just um just wanted to get out there right away and uh start auditioning on my own and so that's what I did. But I, I loved my time there.
2: Were you doing a lot of theater work or commercials or T V shows or what was that like?
5: Yeah, I did um, I did little things, little projects all the time, but um, commercials, I'm telling you, I don't know what happened, but I just started clicking, and uh, I just started booking commercials left and right, and it just really started supporting me, actually. So I was very grateful for that. You know, commercials, uh, they pay the bills. Nice, steady source of income sometimes. Once I booked my first commercial, I... I um, started booking them and I ended up doing like 30 commercials and it paid, uh, you know, I got into the Screen Actors Guild pension plan just on commercials alone. And I was just total opposite of uh, what I kind of look like now. You know, I was, I had uh, shorter hair and I was uh, the clean cut guy next door and um, which is now just the opposite. <laughs> so how did you get involved with Sunny Boy. Sunny Boy, you know that's crazy. You know what? Actually, Mike, the director uh, of that film, actually uh, they were they were casting Sunny Boy, but they they went through a lot of uh, candidates and they couldn't find one. And the the person they were looking for, and the director's wife actually saw me on a commercial, and she said, "Hey, we should bring this guy in." Which is really crazy because I had um, like a crew cut. I was playing a soldier in an at t commercial, and um, they saw that and brought me in. My hair was a little bit longer at the time, and they said, "Oh, we could throw a wig on him." So that's what they did. And but that's how I got um, got the audition for that. Actually, was from a commercial, you know, which really surprised me. Before I got that part, I just got cast in my first future film the crazy thing was I was going to play um Kinsky's Kinski's brother and we were going to shoot it in Europe and uh, so I was just like sky high I was like oh my god I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to play her brother and then um all of a sudden Sunny Boy came along and I thought oh my god I I want to do this one so then I found out you can't You can't just do that. I didn't actually sign a contract. I mean, like a SAG contract. But when they cast me for that part, for the uh, Nastassia Kinski film, um, I uh, just signed on a piece of paper, actually like a scratch paper. And then when I told the casting director, who was in one of Oliver Stone's movies, by the way, when I told him that I wanted to do this other film, he said, well, you know, we can sue you. And I, then I was like, all scared, and I didn't know what to do. And then they they went ahead and and let me off the hook. And so you know, then we did Sunny Boy. Yeah, crazy, crazy. <laughs> what was your experience like on on Sunny Boy? I was, you know, I really kept to myself a lot, and um, you know, like like that character. I, I'm kind of actually a lot like that. I'm I'm pretty much a loner, and um, so I kept to myself a lot. But um, Brad Dorf, who I just did not know how amazing this guy was uh, uh, as an actor. He's he's actually just an incredible, you know, incredibly nice guy too. And uh, he just kept coming over to me and talking to me like he'd known me forever. And so I end up, you know, started having breakfast with him every day, you know, before we shot. So he just kind of. Uh, taught me a lot and kind of took me under his wing you know told me all these stories that he had working with people like john houston and things like that kind of kept me um i think a little grounded but sunny boy was i didn't realize it at the time but it was just like something i'm i'm actually just so proud to be you know to have been a part of you know and um it was um it was quite a quite an experience, you know. I got hurt a lot on that film, and you know, physically, but I, I loved it, and I I think I was really just trying to be as much like Sonny Boy, on the camera all the time as well. And people kind of don't understand that; they think that you're being Kind of um, stuck up or something, but I was just like, this is the only way I could pull this off is just, uh, you know, be by myself all the time. And so that's kind of what I did. How old were you when you were making that? Uh, Like early 20s, you know.
2: I've I've seen different dates as far as when the movie was actually shot. I had read once that it was shot in 87 and didn't get picked up for distribution until 89, and then I'd read that it came out in 90 actually. So I I'm it, it, there's so many rumors swirling about the film.
5: It was yeah, shot in 87, I believe, and then um yeah, it had some problems getting released. 89 is when it came and went like in one week at the theaters and then and then 90 uh Warner Brothers released it um you know on um on video that must have been a little devastating for you
2: to be the one of the lead characters in this film or or the titular character and then have it kind of disappear like that
5: Oh uh, yeah it it hit me hard it really did cuz i was just thinking oh, you know, this is going to come out and um, it's really going to, you know, kind of help me a little bit. And um, but it it just wasn't the case. Um, yeah, I, I think anybody that, that does the first film has just got all this, um, all these um, ideas that, oh, this is going to, you know, this is going to be great. And it's really going to next thing you know, you're going to. Um, you know, get to meet some new casting directors and everything like that. But that really wasn't the case, you know. And then I found out later, you know, with with Little Boy Bloom, you know, the same thing can happen, especially for, you know, a film that's kind of, you know, very different.
2: What was it like working with Robert Martin Carroll as a director?
5: Very nice guy and very, um, he's an actor's director, I would say, all the way. Very soft-spoken uh, man. He's very um, sensitive, I would say. But I liked everything. I mean, I liked I liked working with them, and uh, actually, Brad got very close with uh, Robert too during the shoot. Those two hung out a lot as well. Yeah, he, I think he gave us uh, gave all the actors a lot of freedom. It was a, it was a really good experience, you know. I actually had you know the years afterwards, I had became friends with Robert. He invited me to his house a few times and we went out to eat and things like that. Very, um, very likable guy.
2: You shared a lot of scenes with Paul L. Smith. What was he like to work with?
5: Paul was a a tough guy. And um, actually, the very first scene that I did with him was when he threw Sunny Boy at the ice cream truck, you know, for Sunny Boy's first kill and paul really threw me onto the asphalt and i was like trusting that he was going to let me you know kind of you know break the fall a little bit and uh he was just all I'm throwing into the ground and that's exactly what he did and so you know we kind of we actually kind of got into it after that after the very first take I'm Like wow, this is what this is how this is going to be. And um, Paul really um, actually kept to himself a lot too uh, on the set, and uh, he was the only one with the um, with the with the trailer too. We kept our distance really the whole time that we were shooting that.
2: Yeah, he talks about some of the injuries that you got on set. That seems like one of them. What were some of the other things that that hurt you while you were actually there?
5: Oh my gosh! Well, my knees were always got up my, hurt my shoulder I actually got bit by a spider in the desert and I I didn't really think much about it but like three days it was kind of all swollen up and then I left I found this um this mark that was on my arm for years from that bite had had a little thing oh and hair pulling and things like that things that just happened but listen I, I'm not complaining about that <laughs> I mean, this guy was definitely, um, definitely uh, beat up a little bit in the film. And so, you know, that's just the way it goes.
2: I really like the physicality that you bring to the role. I mean, you you don't even really walk upright at all when you're doing it. And it's just, it really adds to the character kind of being insular and, and protective of himself.
5: I always kind of thought of it like, yeah, he's probably bent over most of the time anyway. And he just, kind of gets around like that, Robert actually said, how do you think he should walk? And I said, well, I've been thinking a lot about that. And this is kind of what I think. And I just uh, walked across the room and he says, I like that. And he said, let's try to um, keep that up during the film. And I said, "Okay, cool. (laughs) He was always on guard. That's for sure. He never knew what was coming, you know, from which direction with, with, you know, with the other characters and everything.
2: I wanted to ask, do you have many memories of working
5: with David Carradine? Gosh, you know, I, I can't believe I, that guy, you know, besides Brad, was this what a sweet man. I was really, um, really surprised by that. You'd see him in film and he's always kind of quiet. And uh, I mean, his characters and maybe didn't talk as much, but he was a talker and a very, very sweet guy. I actually um, spent a little bit of time with him a few days on the set, I mean, you know, away from, from the camera and everything. And, but he was a very, uh, sweet man. I think a very underappreciated actor, really, you know, which, you know, you, you find out later, but to wear that dress the way he did and, and he was so comfortable in it. Um, I really admired that, you know, but he was, um, very, very, um, very generous guy, I would say.
2: It must have been a little bit of a challenge for you. Here you are, one of your first feature film roles, and you're not allowed to speak.
5: Well, that's perfect for me, because I don't, really, I don't talk that much. I mean, right now I am. I'm trying to be cool and be Mr. Talkative, but really, I'm a really quiet person. But, um, you know what? I love that. I love that challenge. It didn't bother me at all that, um, you know, I was going to... you know, be pretty much mute the whole the whole time during the shooting of that film. You know, as opposed to like a lot of dialogue and everything. But I I really like that. I to me it just made it a little more interesting.
2: So we talked a little bit about the reaction to the film afterwards. What happens to you then? What do you, are you just immediately? I, I I don't even imagine that you took any time off between this and your next role. That you're immediately looking for the next thing.
5: Oh, yeah, well, I was, Mike, but it just, you know, wasn't really happening. you know, theatrically, um, actually, I didn't even have um, a theatrical agent for quite a while. I was always doing everything on my own. But commercially, yeah, I was I was really fortunate because I did have a commercial agent and they got me out a lot. Yeah. As far as uh, getting in for auditions and everything, I just was not. But I wanted to. How did Little Boy Blue come about? Well, you know, I really kind of had that story in my head, you know, like when I was a teenager. I always had that story in my head because I have always, you know, I come from a broken family and I always had some doubts about who my father was and, um, and the person that was my father. I didn't want to accept him as my father, you know. So I always kind of had this idea in my head. After Sunny Boy, you know, a few years later, of course, I, you know, I started, I started writing on it and um, writing the, the script. Like Robert, the director of Sunny Boy, said, "Yeah, I see a lot of similarities between Sunny Boy and Little Boy Blue." And when he said that, I, I was like, "Oh, you're right." You know, I never really thought about that. So I think maybe the story that I always had in my head. And then after working on Sunday Boy, it kind of added to it and, you know, subconsciously. And then it just came out when, when I was writing it and everything. Funny how that works. So it's one thing to write
2: a, a movie, but it's quite another thing to actually get it produced in that town. So how did you go about actually making that movie happen?
5: Oh, my gosh. Crazy, crazy. You talk about beginner's luck. I was so lucky. Here's the crazy thing. I, because people ask me, and I said, Well, I did it the old fashioned way. They say, You know, write a letter to 100 agents, tell them what the story's about, and then maybe one or two are going to respond. So that's exactly what I did. And two people responded. And then so I met with the first one. And a week later, he said, We got an offer on it. And, um, I was like, wow, are you kidding me? And so then, um, it went into, um, well, we, we thought, okay, well, that's just the first person that we talked to, uh, that wants to do it. Um, maybe we can see what else happens. Well, you know, we realized a little while later, listen, these people are going to do a movie that a lot of people would never go near. So let's go with them. And, and so we did and, um, they had like, um, seven or eight films in development and they pushed everything aside and they said, we're going to make little boy blue. And these were the, um, the producer had just, um, produced a film with, um, Lawrence Fishborn and oh, Ellen Barkin called bad company. They just like pushed everything aside and they said, well, we're going to do this. And then, you know, we had some delays and everything. And this, I'll tell you this, Mike. This is crazy. Guess who was going to play Ryan Phillippe's girlfriend in the film? Angelina Jolie. The film got delayed, and she, she, we had table readings and everything. And um, I, I didn't really know that much about her, but but everybody said, "This is this." Do you know who this is? You know, blah blah blah. But even though she was like just kind of starting out her career, and then the film got delayed, and then she did Gia and a couple of other things. And so we never got her back, you know? <laughs> But yeah, she was going to, she was going to play um, Tracy, which is great. Well, it's
2: a little ironic that here, Natasha Kinski is back in the picture since you were almost going to make your first film with her. That is so crazy. I know
5: it's there's a lot of weird things. Yeah. That, that happened. And then John Savage is like the guy that I just, Kind of grew up idolizing, and to work with him too, I was like, "Wow, this guy, this this is the guy." You know, I I kind of when I when I was younger, I kind of looked like him. People have even said you're kind of soft spoken. You're kind of like John Savage. I'm like, really? Mm, Thank you.
2: What was it like working with uh, Antonio Tabaldi?
5: He was he's very quiet, very introverted guy, and I think he's a perfectionist which I totally respect. Once I got on, you know, because I had a a small part in the film too, but once I got on the set, I just like totally stayed away from him, let him do his thing. Just um, pre-production is is really when I really kind of um, talked with him the most, you know, but um, yeah, he was um, very professional, I should say.
2: And what was the reaction to the film?
5: Kind of like Sonny Boy, really. People either... Loved it or hated it, really. But to me, I'm I'm very proud of it. I'm so blessed that it got made. But um, yeah, a lot of people um, they kind of didn't know what to think. You know, it's kind of it's kind of disturbing. I I always kind of looked at it like, um, listen, we may not have heard these things, we may not have read about them in the papers, but maybe something like this really has happened before. And so I just wanted to kind of put the truth out there that this, this is very possible, you know, and I love things like that. But I mean, that's me, but, uh, other people's reaction was, um, you know what, actually, Mike, you know, a lot of people didn't see it, but in the industry, people loved it. You know, it's just like people that you've, that I've come across over the years, if it's something is brought up about, you know, what have you done or blah, blah, blah. They all know that film. And they all they all like it, you know, for the most part, which is, to me, is very satisfying.
2: It seems like after Little Boy Blue, you kind of took a little bit of a break from acting. Is that true?
5: That was kind of, that was really devastating for me. I was like really, um, really started feeling sorry for myself. And, and so I just hit the bottle. <laughs> I hit the bottle hard. Yeah, I mean, I was just like, forget about write in forget about well actually i will say there. right after that right after little boy blue i think i wrote the best thing that i've ever written and um but nothing seemed to happen with that and so then i started really feeling sorry for myself which is uh you know it took took a lot of years to to get over and the reason i i wasn't out there was uh you know self-destruction really well, how did you finally manage to get over it?
2: How did you finally come back?
5: Well, I've been sober seven years. I got a real job. I still managed to um you know, um be functional and go to work every day and I I realized I needed that structure. You know, I still do that job today and I love it. And it's um that's how I got 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 it all together again, you know, but I once I got Stayed away from booze. I just like everything just started coming back to me. You know, I got out of that fog, and it's like, wow, this is why I'm not here. You only live once. Just, just go for it again. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm just like, kind of starting over again. You know. I know that you've done some some shorts. You've done uh, at least uh, one movie
2: since you kind of been back out and 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 in, in the world and acting. Tell me about your latest project, where it seems like now you're kind of taking on that pro role, at least from the photo that I saw.
5: Yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. It's um, this is something that I wrote and I produced myself, and you know, I I saved my money up and I I I've been writing a lot of short films, kind of you know, not submitting to anybody for anything. I just thought, you know what, I want to do this. I've always wanted to do this, so I'm going to do it. And so actually, like a week ago, we finished principal photography on it. It's a little short film. It's probably going to run, I, I don't know, maybe like 13, 14 minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm in the honeymoon stage. You know, it's, it's great. I, I love it. And, and it was so much fun. And, and um, you, know, you know, there's a lot of me in there, I'll admit. But it's, it's about a, um, a struggling method actor. And he kind of goes about things the way I kind of used to go about things, you know he just goes into it uh head first he'll start living in the park or anything that he has an audition for, not necessarily doesn't necessarily get the part, but that's how he works and and that's how this character works i'm just um I'm going into the i'm gonna get an editor for it probably within a week, and then we're gonna start going into it but wow, what a great experience. And it really gave me faith in, in actors. Cause I, I was just like, I, I, I kind of hated actors. I really did. And, um, you know, for a long time. And now I realized, Oh my God, I love these people. They're so given. And they, um, they gave me everything they got. And I just, you know, I'm just like, I can't believe it, you know? So I have faith in actors again, for sure. What's the name of the project called dress rehearsal. Actually, Mike, one of the parts that he gets an audition for is a cross dresser. I said, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. So I, I got into a dress and, and, um, (laughs) it was an amazing feeling. And my my girlfriend, I actually borrowed my girlfriend's dress and she did the makeup for me. And, um, crazy thing is I have a, a sister and I actually look like my sister in the film, <laughs> which is yeah, which is crazy. But they haven't; they don't know anything about it. So don't tell them. Okay, I won't. Well, that sounds great.
2: I'm so glad that you're making that, and it sounds like things have kind of really turned around for you.
5: You know what? Even if they don't, Mike, I'm never gonna, um, never gonna seize this moment. You know, it's just so good. I, I feel so good to just be doing something, you know, creative again, and it just feels so good. And, uh, you know, I'm writing again and I'm just like, I'm so blessed. I really am. That's terrific.
2: Well, Mr. Boston, thank you so much for your time today. This has been terrific.
5: Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Not too painful, right? No, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh my God. Oh, you want me to tell the David Lynch story? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Okay. So anyway, you know, I work for a uh, public utility, right? That's my job. And so I had to go to his house and I saw the name that says D. Lynch. I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is him. So I go to the house for safety. I had to shut off the service. And so then, next thing I know, a few days later, the problem was resolved. So I go back and I'm talking to his assistant, and his assistant really doesn't know that I know whose house I'm at. And um, I'm like, God, is he around? Can can I meet the owner? You know, and um, and you know, we, I kind of did it like that. And he says, "No, he's um, he's out of town." Well, he was he was working on um, Twin Peaks, right? The the new um, the new series on Showtime. Next thing I know, like about a month later, I get a call, and it's like um, an extras casting service. And I said, "Well, I said no, I I don't." I can't do extra work. I don't, you know, I, because I work a full-time job and, you know, I can't get in trouble at work. He said, okay, well, I just want to tell you that um, you were picked by um, David Lynch. I said, really? David Lynch, really? He said, yeah, he picked you and a few other guys just to be in this scene. I said, Oh, okay. You know what? I think I can work something out. And um, <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, I'm going to do this. And so I took two days off from work, and I went there, and I was in the scene, and um, Kyle, and so he was in the scene, and I was, like, standing behind him, and so we're just, like, watching this fight go on, so the guys weren't really very vocal, and I'm like, yeah, we should be vocal, and so we did another take, and I just, like, got right into the picture, and I started screaming and everything, and then the AD said um, he was talking to David. After that take, he said, yeah. He goes, but that one guy got right into the frame and everything. And then David said, so what? That's beautiful. We'll keep it. And I thought, wow, cool. So um, I had one more day on the set. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go up and talk to him before the. leave. And um, so I went and shook his hand. Whoa, wow, you talk about a really nice guy. You know, very, very friendly, very warm person. And um, I thought, you know what? I'm going to give him a copy. Little boy blue. And so I don't know if he's ever seen it since I gave it to him. He's been so busy anyway. But, um, so I said, hi, I said, I was the guy that, that cut your service off. He goes, oh, that was you, huh? And he was grinning. And I said, yeah, but I came back and turned it back on. But, oh, I, what I meant to say also is, um, see, I'm getting all excited now. Um, he, the guy that was his assistant, um, saw me on the set and he says, Hey, didn't you come to didn't you come to David's house, you know, a few months ago? I said, Yeah, that was me. And he had no he had nothing to do with any of that, but he thought that was kind of funny. And I did too, you know. But um so anyway, when I was leaving, yeah, I said, Um, here's a little movie if you ever have the time, you know, go ahead and check it out and I shook his hand and everything. And that was it. But that was my that was my um, you know, Little moment with David Lynch. Awesome,
2: awesome. Well, yeah, I'm hoping that that uh, that bit remains in the in the
5: show when it comes out, so I can look for you. I hope they hear my voice, so they'll give me a credit on it. You know, that would be cool. That'd be a nice thing to put on a resume.
2: We are back, and we were talking about Sunny Boy. Now, we didn't bring Mike Malloy on just for his good looks. He does have a, uh, a little bit of a connection to David Carradine, and uh, I've heard a lot about David Carradine from you over the years, and especially hearing about his directorial efforts, which for a while I didn't even know that he did make directorial efforts, but I want to know, Mike, what is kind of your connection with David Carradine other than just being a big fan?
3: Oh, uh, no particular connection other than, uh, yeah, I was friendly with him when I lived in L.A. And uh, he saw that I had an interest in his directorial career, which he seemed always very pleased to be talking about because that basically was what it was all about for him. He was like, um, you know, Cassavetes or somebody who took the acting gigs just to funnel the money into this uh, directing career, but unlike Casavedes, in a, in a cruel twist of fate, he took all the acting roles, including mu- uh, tons of schlock, funneled the money into movies that, for, in large part, never got released. Uh, he directed four films, or he started directing four films, uh, only one of which got properly released, Americana. One film he turned the directorial reins over to his co-star uh, in Americana, Michael Green, uh, but the four films were You and Me, 1972 production, uh, Americana and A Country Mile, 1973 production, and Matahari, which began production in 77, I think, and then continued on all through the 80s. Um, but, uh, yeah, the sunny boy, he may have loved the acting role and he, you know, took the challenge and all, but with respect to the overarching artistic plans of David Carradine, the acting was just work. And he was taking it to uh, to fund this, this whole hidden thing. In fact, he even sold back his kung fu royalties to Warner Brothers so that it could keep working on one of the movies at a critical time.
2: Oh, wow. That's a healthy chunk of change. It's something you would think that you would want to live on for the rest of your life.
3: In fact, it is, uh, you know, the path that is, his life went, indeed. But anyways, I'm uh, writing a book on the subject of those four films called David Carradine, The Lost Auteur, and, um, you know, I've interviewed, uh, you know, a bunch of Carradines. I've interviewed a Barrymore. I've interviewed just tons and tons of people connected to the story. Um, so, um, you yeah, know, really hoping to make it a first hand account, uh, of these movies.
4: And actually, the, the other odd, I guess, tangential thing that I, I want to mention is the movie that I saw in the late 90s, 1997, called Little Boy Blue. Uh, which starred Ryan Filippi and Nastassi Kinski, and is, an, is another huge story of, uh, of systemic child abuse that was uh, written by Michael Boston. Interesting. Yeah.
2: And it's funny, because I just got an email from him today confirming our interview for... Uh, monday and he sent in uh, a picture from the set of dress rehearsal is the name of it and he uh, wrote directed and produced it and he plays a struggling method actor who takes his research too far when he gets an audition as a cross dresser so he's also sent me a picture of himself in full drag and i'm just like wow you got legs that would make pearl proud
4: that is absolutely fascinating but yeah, I, I would lo- I would love to know more about Little Boy Blue because it was a movie that absolutely flew under the radar. I saw it because I was working at TV Guide, so I was on the weekly reviewing beat, and, and you know, basically three of us were doing every movie that opened in New York every week, and I drew Little Boy Blue, and it is a very interesting movie when you put it up against Sunny Boy. So perhaps you'll have something to say about that.
2: I will definitely be asking about him. So this is kind of weird. This is that fractured time frame from the end of the film and from the beginning of the film. So it's it sounds like I'm going to be talking to him, but you have already heard the interview. People assume that time is a
0: strict progression of cause to effect, but actually from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Getting
3: back to Carradine for just a second, uh, there was another major motivator for him doing something like Sonny Boy. It wasn't just because he was doing a steady stream of acting to fund his directing career. He also, uh, during the 80s, had the IRS breathing down his neck, so he was accepting roles left and right. And around this time in the 80s, he was even doing two films at once, accepting a role by day and then flying to some other location and doing a role by night. I think 1990, the sundown, sundown Vampire and Retreat, he did. And uh, Bruce Campbell was his co-star. And in the supplements on that DVD, Bruce is um, saying that Carradine had this kind of style of delivery where he would start a sentence and then have these kind of uh, non-naturalistic pauses. And Bruce was saying that Carradine was just groping for the end of his line. He would start a line without knowing how it was going to end, and he was just hoping his memory would catch up and stop fortunately he doesn't suffer that in sunny boy he, he has a very naturalistic delivery in sunny boy bruce campbell in that interview kind of theorizes that Carradine was boozing too heavy and that's why he couldn't remember these lines but uh, good grief cut the guy some some slack if the guy is doing two films simultaneously you know scurried to and from different sets and stuff it's 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 easy to see how he could uh, get in over his head
4: and also you know apropos funny boy i have to say his performance is absolutely astonishing you know uh, on the surface of it when you look at stills for example of of Carradine as pearl you can look at them and just dismiss them as wow this is real kind of freak show filmmaking but when you actually look at his performance as pearl it's extraordinarily warm and convincing it's one of those things that you look at and Part of you is saying, "Oh my God, I'm seeing David Carradine in a dress with uh, with with a long wig," and part of you is saying, "And yet, I completely buy Pearl as a character, and I completely buy Pearl's love for this baby, and I buy Pearl's extremely conflicted devotion to Slew, and I buy Pearl's dedication to this makeshift family that includes Weasel." It's very moving, I think, and and really an astonishing piece of acting.
3: Yeah, I remember Roger Ebert's uh, review of Charles Bronson in The Indian Runner when Sean Penn cast Charles Bronson as this farmer father in this drama in like around the same time, 1991. And uh, Ebert said at first it was just jarring and a shock to see Charles Bronson non-mustached playing a non-tough guy, but by the end of the film I couldn't imagine anybody else playing it. And that's kind of the test for these kind of roles. It's like, yes, it's jarring to see Carradine in a wig playing somebody who has feminine energy. But by the end of the film, yeah, I couldn't imagine anybody else in that role. Mike, how long have you been working on this book? The act of writing for about a year and a half now. But uh, it's you know been kind of one of the, one of the research projects of my life. Uh, and David was very, I hope, flattered that I took such an interest in these movies and uh, I tried to help find him uh, while he was still with us. I tried to help locate, you know, missing elements and stuff like that. Because part of the problem with these films never getting completed or released was the fact that he'd go through divorces and marriages and stuff, and stuff would get moved from this storage unit to that storage unit, and, you know, stuff would just go missing. Yeah, I've been been collecting materials on these movies for a long, long time. Has his family been pretty good, his ex-wives and all those folks? Mainly trying to stay out of that mess. like his daughter, Kalista, was the star of Mata Hari. So I've been uh, talking to her and interviewed her. Bruce Carradine, his uh, adopted brother, was in two of the movies. Keith, I've even interviewed. Keith was, uh, you know, one of his early film roles was in You and Me, David's directorial debut.
4: I just really want to say again what an astonishing movie I think Sunny Boy is. And what a grotesquely underappreciated film it is. Because... It is a really deeply human, moving movie, and yet is packaged, not just in literal packaging form, but in the way that people often speak about it, as a movie that's kind of a freak show, like, oh my god, man, you 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 have got to see this, this is so crazy, this is so messed up, uh, kind of maybe a shock cinema sort of movie, when in fact, it is so much more. And I really wish that uh, it could reach a larger audience because of that.
2: Yeah, I feel that it's very unfortunate. You know, it came out in a a fantastic Blu-ray package recently, and they did a really nice job with the restoration. You've got audio commentaries from the director and the writer. You've got even the original script is available if you have uh, uh, the right kind of, you know, hard drive on your computer. But I have to say that the cover does a real disservice to it because it's this. It basically makes it look like a, a, a Gremlins or a Ghoulies or something. It's these eyes in the dark and this jagged hand coming out of the dark with a, a, a chain around its wrist and these long claw-like fingernails and. and you know, reaching out for this uh empty uh, uh uh smashed up can and there's like an apple core near there and bones and it's just like this really isn't the movie. You know, of course like we we're talking about how hard it is to market. I think maybe the VHS cover with uh Slew and Pearl and Sunny Boy on it does a little bit better of a job, but the D V D or the Blu-ray cover I think really does a, a disservice to the movie that's inside.
4: What I I think is fascinating about this movie is that it is so, first of all, difficult to market and yet so richly rewarding when you actually see it. And I say that as somebody whose copy of Sunny Boy is this bootleg that I've had for (laughs) several decades that's got a time code running in the upper right-hand side and that has clearly not been color corrected. And yet, despite those flaws, is a story that is just it's profoundly moving and, and not just to me. It's, it's clearly a, a movie that should be able to connect with an audience way beyond the, the audience that the somewhat hyperbolically uh, scary synopsis would draw and the audience that would be drawn by the Blu-ray cover that you described. It, it's completely not representative of the film itself which is just plain great. And I think there are far more people who would like it than would ever know it from the way in which it's being presented.
2: I have to say it's a very divisive film. You know, looking at the reviews on IMDb or the reviews on Amazon, I mean, you are all over the map. Though it does seem like people are at one star or five stars, and there's very few in between. Just looking at this one, I I don't tend to do this, but I did want to read this just because this is a, a counterpoint to everything that we've talked about when it comes to this very beautiful and heartfelt movie. I can't believe I wasted eighteen ninety nine on this cult movie. Usually, I make sure to see a movie before I commit to buying it on DVD, but there were so many good reviews for this, and it has a crazy cast that I figured it would be some fun. No such luck. Drag queen Pearl Caradine and Fatso Slu Smith raise a baby to become a killer, and they call him Sunny Boy Griffin. They use Sonny Boy to take out pesky deputies and mayors who threaten their small New Mexico town. Eventually, Sonny Boy realizes that what he's doing is wrong and attempts an escape. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for something exciting to happen. The package also boasts of unrated version, but there's nothing graphic or shocking about this movie. What a mess.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, my response to that is, well, okay. Okay. Your expectations are completely out of line with what this movie is. I mean, this movie is not fun, first of all. It's just, it's not a a romp through the gory tulips. And, uh, sorry that it, uh, had some complexities to it that you didn't expect. Maybe you should get Wrong Turn 5 and take a look at that. That would probably make you happier.
3: Yeah, that reviewer probably came from River Run Road. (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) No, I just yeah. feel I feel bad that the film didn't connect with more of an audience, but even more specifically, I feel bad that the film didn't connect with my wife, because she sat through all the torture and the mean-spiritedness and then bailed before it got to any of the redemption. So You didn't point out every ray of hope? Uh, they were few and far between in the early parts of the film, and that's why she couldn't hang in there.
4: Well, and I have to say, I'm glad that my husband, who really does not like... You know, grotesque, creep out, violent, horrible movies. Did sit through all of it, and at the end of it, said, "Wow, that's a great movie."
2: Way to go, Frank!
4: Yeah, well, way to go, Frank. Big points to Frank.
2: All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. <laughs>
3: see you at the theater tonight i'll hold your seat till you get there after you get there you're on your own
1: hello hello yes
5: no he's not in yet all right but goodbye
8: that was for you again
5: i wonder whatever became of me i should have been back here a long time ago they got
6: <laughs>
2: That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of Duck Soup. After all this death and destruction this month, it is time to take a little bit of a break. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Mike Malloy and Maitland McDonough. Mike, what is the haps with you and all of your projects these days?
3: Well, my two cinema documentaries, Eurocrime, is uh, available in North America. It's it's easily available at any retailer, just about any online retailer. It uh, just sold to Japan most recently. The hard luck project that is Plastic Movies Rewound continues along. The bad news is it struggles and is uh, slow moving, uh, but the good news is everything I see on screen is basically what I had in my mind.
2: By the time you get that out, we might have switched formats again.
3: Or it'll come full circle and it'll you know VHS will be the norm. Uh, Joking aside, uh, mine is not even a VHS. It's just a, about the video boom in general. So it's not format-specific. then what is keeping you out of the
2: bars these days?
4: Oh, what's keeping me out of the bars is uh, I have just put out a new reprint of a vintage gay adult novel called Gay Cruise. Uh, very smart, very clever, uh, very interesting novel that takes place on a yacht that has been repurposed as a gay bordello and uh very clever lots of fun and available on Amazon under the title Gay Cruise.
2: Now this is not your first rodeo or your first gay cruise. How many of these have you done so far?
4: Uh this makes 7. Yeah, nice. I'm I'm aiming for 10 at the very least. And uh you know, my my feeling about these books is that although many of them are as my mother would have said no better than they should be, a number of them are very interesting novels that I think open a window onto a certain part of the gay experience in the 1970s that you did not see in certainly not in mainstream fiction, which was overwhelmingly straight, and nor did you see in um, literary gay fiction, which was by and large, preoccupied with problem novels that were about you know, the problems of being gay in one way or another. These are novels that really did give rein to the same kind of pulp fiction influences that people experienced in straight novels, fantasies, science fiction stories, horror novels, pulp fictions in which the characters were overwhelmingly gay gay was the new normal in those books. And uh, they're, they're, uh, the best of them are terrific fun, and the novels that I've been selecting to republish are what I think are the best of them.
2: What's been the reaction, especially from the gay community?
4: Uh, it's been a mixed reaction, actually. Some people have lauded these, these reprints as being Uh, a forgotten piece of the gay past, and uh, others look at them as, well, that's just trashy fiction like any other trashy fiction, so why are you republishing it? And my answer is, well, you know, why would I republish uh, noir novels from the 30s? That was just trashy fiction, too, except that it was more than trashy fiction. It was trashy fiction that was freed from the constraints of literary fiction and often represented, uh, a more vivid and more diverse view of the world than you saw in novels that were considered respectable novels.
2: Well, you are doing some amazing work. I have to applaud you once again. Sounds thank fascinating.
4: You. I, thank you. It's, it, it's something that I, I do feel very strongly about. I think that pulp fiction in general is always a a way of approaching uh, what was happening at a particular place in a particular time, in a way that is not necessarily represented in more mainstream fiction. And uh, you know, let's face it: why do we read Dashiell Hammett novels? They're they're really well written; they're good novels. But it's also because they were a look at that period in American history that wasn't being dealt with by um, more critically lauded in their day novelists, because they looked at things that were kind of ugly, kind of difficult, kind of stuff that was happening below the surface that not everybody wanted to talk about, and yet that was still clearly a huge part of what was going on.
2: Well, thank you again, guys, for coming on the show. I always love talking with you. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I am not running late. So every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
1: I'm looking for a place Where the dogs don't bite Children don't cry And everything always goes just right and Brothers don't bite Maybe it's just over that hill at the end of this rainbow And maybe it's just pain And maybe it ain't I'm searching for a land Where a man can stand Without sucking his head. But no one ever says they'd rather be someplace else instead. No one ever wishes him here Maybe it's just over that hill, up ahead. Maybe it's Driving for a time When the sun always shines And all night long that girl was always mine